Good evening. Welcome to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. My name's Kyle Bird. <clears throat> My name's Kyle Bird. <laughs> Pardon me. <I'm> sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah. and yes, my my co-host Matt. Uh, he was gracious enough to wake up a moment ago to introduce himself. Um, and we're joined by some uh, some recurring guests for the first time. Together with us, though, um, this was another one that was supposed to be a Halloween episode until Matt came down with multiple viruses, sub- like <laughs> one after another. Um, so, uh, by uh, just his contractual obligation from October, um, we have Tom with us from the Final Forum Dragon Ball podcast. What's up? And um, we have our friend Justin. Justin Mullis, who uh, has has popped up uh, here and there to uh, um, usually to help us with some folklore stuff. And while we're not doing folklore today, we are talking about uh, something paranormal, um, which is uh, something that um, he is pretty pretty fluent in. Isn't that right, Justin? It is. I would say we're doing something grander than folklore here. We're talking about. We're going to be talking about UFOs, which, as Carl Jung said, is the modern myth of things seen in the skies. So, All right. Um, is this another thing that was only invented in 1995 or something and is going <laughs> to... It's a little, <laughs> little, little, little bit older. A little bit older than that. We're going to go at least back to, like, 1913. Okay, I can, I can live with that. Um. Uh, a couple uh, news items um, to kind of get through. Um, first, uh, sadly, um, I think we should mention the passing of Kazuki Omori, um, the mm-hmm. director of Godzilla vs. Bailante and um, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. And uh, he also uh, wrote Godzilla vs. Mothra, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2, and... Um, Godzilla versus Destroya. Um, later, we'll, we'll Matt and I. There's something bigger we want to do um, to talk about him more. But for now, I think it's important to mention. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know if people our age or younger really realize that Omori was like he was a, a really like hot indie director who had come in to basically shake the franchise up, you know, and try and make it more modern. And what he did with his films, I mean, he basically established 
the tone of Godzilla, basically from Biollante through now, um, and uh, probably brought it into you know the modern and sometimes even postmodern world more than probably any other filmmaker. So, you know, his contributions are not to be uh, shrugged at. Um, yeah, this is a guy who uh, I don't want to say I would have shrugged completely at him uh if i found out about this you know five ten years ago but i would have just been like oh yeah he made that one movie i really like and then other movies you know um but then the interview that was done for kaiju Masterclass, um that was like what i think the kitamura interview was for most other people uh, that the Omori interview was that for me where I was like, Oh, this is actually someone mm-hmm. who is very aware of what his faults and failings were as a storyteller, but still was trying to do his best. And what a lot of the complaints against him are misunderstood and, um, not he his heart was in the right place and i think that was an eye opener because i have approached his movies that i've watched since then in the slightly different light kind of knowing the his mentality and mindset and what he was trying to do even though he may not always have been successful at doing it and unlike kitamura you know, Kitamura's had, you know, I mean, he's gone to Hollywood, even, like, his first movie, Versus, became, like, a cult hit internationally, and Omori never had that, so outside of Japan, not much is really known about him, um, and yeah, that was just a really good interview where, you know, he talked about, you know, uh, how he, you know, was a med student, and, you know, that was, like, what he made his first movie about, and, you know, he ended up being like having like a runaway indie hit, and then he Tanaka basically hired him to like break the Godzilla franchise. He was like, figure out how to make this work for a 1989 audience, and he was like, well, what if I go for something like similar to Aliens? And it's like that that's what they needed. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, I at the risk of sounding, I don't know, self-serving or something. That is part of why we did the kaiju masterclass things to begin with, because these people aren't going to be around forever, and they deserve to have their stories told, especially their stories outside of Godzilla. And, you know, they des- they deserve to be kind of uh, confronted with real questions about their work. I mean, hearing him explain kind of the 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 perspective that he was trying to go for with you know the 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 economic bubble stuff in Godzilla versus King Ghidorah and how he he said you know in his view the the Futurians were like their their intentions were heroic you know that that flips what a lot of the interpretations about that movie are upside down and it's like mm-hmm. you know he he deserves to be able to you know to explain that stuff in, in his own words. And so, you know, uh, 
I mean, we're we're lucky that we got to have him, and I mean, he he was awesome. Yeah, I just to piggyback off of both of you, I think like that interview. If you haven't seen it, like you should just stop what you're doing and go go listen to it because it's a really really good insightful interview and. Um, you know, Amori to me, like Violante is one of my favorite Godzilla films. It's one of the films that as a kid probably hit the most for various different reasons. <laughs> Reviled by the fandom at the time. <laughs> Which the time. I know, but like for me, like I watched that movie and honestly, I, yeah. I was blown away with it the first time I saw it. Well, um, like I, everything after that, everything Godzilla, even like the legendary movies and stuff, you can trace a lot of the tone and what they're doing back to him. Like, so because we've been hit over the head with so much of that, it's hard to like imagine how like weird and crazy that movie must've felt when it came out. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, and you know, like I, I enjoy the crap out of King Ghidorah as flawed as it is. I think there's some really fun ideas in there and, and it's just, it's sad to know, that everybody like these guys, they're just not going to be around forever. And so I'm glad that we were able to support, you know, through Kaiju masterclass and like just be able to, to have their stories told and, and to be documented more than anything else. Because, um, often like, especially here in the West, um, those direct, like these directors and, um, they just, they get overlooked for various different reasons. So, super happy that we could at least, you know, put that out there and people could see it. And like that, like I said, Patrick and Steve did a great job. Um, and you know, Mariko with the translation. So like, it was just, uh, um, people should go check it out. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know, at least in English, that's the first time he'd been interviewed in a really long time, probably since what year was that? G fest 2004. I think it was, wait. Yeah. It was, it was, it It might've been 2005. Um, but yeah, the he was he was there and that that was I mean that was a long time ago now. Um but uh yeah, he was he was he was pretty excited to even be asked, you know. To, so um anyway, may he rest in peace. Um from my understanding he had a uh, leukemia, which I had I don't think I knew that. But. Yeah, that was reported pretty widely, I think. Um in some hopefully positive news, like just hour less than an hour maybe before we started recording, um, Netflix Japan just dropped out of nowhere a very brief, very brief teaser for an upcoming anime project, uh, Gamera Rebirth. So uh, he's back, um, and there was a, there's an official website that has a honestly kind of strange. Uh, uh, message from Shusuke Kaneko on it. Um, the the Google translated version of it says, uh, "When I came up with my own idea for Arewa Gamera and made a proposal, Katakawa ha- forgive me because this is like broken English. Katakawa has already started a new project, and it's content that makes me think that's what happened. So I can expect this too." With that in mind, I would like to support the team from the standpoint of a baseball commentator who has experience coaching the Gamera team until they win the championship and pitch again. 
So what I think he's trying to say is, I walked into Katakawa and I pitched them an idea for a Reiwa Gamera movie, and they said they were already starting another project and told me to go home. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And now he is saying that he is hoping for the best. Um, So, uh, I don't know. I mean, at first that was like, you know, why wouldn't you just let him do it? But then, like, from their perspective, they're probably like, look, we only have so much money that we're going to sink into attempting to bring Gamera back because the last time we did it was a disaster. So we're, we're just going to stick with this for now. So I don't know, maybe if this does well, Kaneko, uh, maybe he'll get a call and he can actually, you know, show all these uh, youngsters how to make a, a real kaiju movie. Gamera, answer the call. But he's back. I mean, I'm assuming this is an anime series or miniseries or something. I don't know. How do we feel about this? Uh, hopeful, but like, you know, I, it's a Netflix animation thing. So, like, I'm assuming it's going to be some uh, 3D thing, and that's I. I hate that. I mean, we're going to watch it, and and I hope it's good. Um, I just, I really. 3D animation bums me out, <laughs> just as a medium in general. <laughs> and I'm I'm on the, I'm just so sick of series, and it's not that they're all bad or even any, even setting aside like the general complaints I have with everything being a series and serialized storytelling. I just never go back and rewatch mm. a series. And, yeah, I get and, that. And that kind of puts me at an arm's length. But other than that, like I have no reason not to be at least interested, right? Yeah. I mean, there, we don't know anything other than Gamera's coming back. And I, I don't know if I've ever said it on here, but like I know – Bird and I have talked offline a lot about this, about like, should these franchises just stay dead or dormant uh, because we have so many entries? I'm very fine with getting like a Gamera entry every 15 years and then go dormant. Like, bring me a Gamera for this era of filmmaking and this style and the sensibilities of now. And then, yeah, put it to bed for a little bit. So It's kind of what Kong was doing up until now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it seemed like every 10 to 20 years there would be a new King Kong thing. and But now it's just, you know, he's in the MonsterVerse, so he's just everywhere now. Yeah, so uh, I'm interested. Um, the, uh, the comment sections, of course, now are... I've already Is this seen. Going to be part of the Godzilla <laughs> yeah, TV yeah, plus. I've, yeah, I've already seen a bunch it's of. It's a continuation of Gamera the Brave. Well, I I keep seeing a lot of like, does this mean we're getting closer to him in the MonsterVerse? And it's like, just leave 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 him alone. Let him let. Yeah, there's already comments I, that are like. I can't I can't wait for it. I'm so happy the '90s team is behind this. <laughs> well. Yeah, the ninety uh, that nineties Gamera anime. The, the, <laughs> <laughs> He's so happy the nineties team is behind this when the director specifically said, I didn't make this. I'm just rooting for it. Which like I mean, that's 
that's basically where I think everybody should be, right? Like, let's just hope it's hope for the best. Right, that's all we can do. Like the we're gonna see more. They're gonna have. I think there was some like announcement tied to uh, toys, of course, with Tamashi Nation. Yeah, I which think makes, this like, weekend uh, or something. There's a big yeah, toy gonna, fair or something that they'll. Probably, so we're gonna see something, yeah. whether it's a trailer or just like the figure of the actual of Gamer himself, or who knows. But hoping for the best. Uh, how many gamer fans are actually like? <laughs> how many gamer fans exist? Uh, like us. Three? Yeah. Arrows, <laughs> Arrows set sold better than they had anticipated, but we also don't exactly know how many units they yeah. produced. Well, I, I know the limited edition, like huge box set that we all bought because we're maniacs. I know those like flew, but you know n- now the ones that are in print are like the uh, there's a Showa one, and I I think there's like a Showa one and a Heisei one. Yeah, there's two. And sets, um, yep. you know, I have no idea how those are selling, but I don't know. That's still like the best set that I own, by the way. In terms oh, it's of great. <laughs> it's yeah. great, it is. It's. It's Stellar. wild that the very best set of anything I'm likely to ever own it's is Gamera. Gamera. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So uh, we're going to get into our main discussion here. Uh, and we have a lot of ground to cover. There's quite a bit to unpack. Um, so I trust... Anyone listening to this probably saw the episode title, and we are talking about the uh, 2022 film released this past July, which is Nope, uh, Jordan Peele's new movie. Um, Now, if you're listening to this, you're one of two people. You're one person who is like, oh, I kind of see why they're talking about this, sort of. Or you're like, why are they talking about this? I saw the ads and the posters, and I, what? I don't get it. If you're one of those people in the second camp, I urge you to just stop right now, go watch the movie, and come back. Uh, This is a movie that I truly, truly believe the less you know about it and what it's actually about and, you know, what's in it, the more rewarding the the viewing experience is. I truly, truly believe that. Um, So I urge you to watch the movie before listening any further, okay? Because See, it's, uh, it's tough. It's tough because I don't want to get too deep into it because part of me very much agrees with you in terms of the plot, but there are some thematic things going on, um, specifically with a an animal character that gets introduced <laughs> very early, very early. That I feel like it. I've seen a lot of people come out of the movie and say they were very confused about like what that was and why that was even in there. And then I've been like, did, have you ever heard about this thing? And they were like, Oh yeah. Just bear with it. Bear with it. Cause I, I promise it'll, it'll make sense. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, the, I, I truly believe that now, if you don't care, I mean, ugh, I really wish you did. Cause like, I get people that are like, eh, you know, I don't care about spoilers, whatever. But this is one where it's like, I really, really want you guys to go watch it first. And that's it's also par- impossible to talk about this movie without talking about right. spoilers. Right, and and, and, yeah. um, and yep. uh, it it um, it really is one that um, part of the reason why we waited till now to do it. Um, it's not just because oh, you know, scary movie Halloween stuff. It's because of what I just said. It's like. 
I want more people to see this before we, you know, do any kind of podcast on it or anything. Just because, like, even covering it on this show is, like, almost <laughs> a spoiler. <laughs> so please go watch the movie and come back. This is your chance. Go do it now. Okay. If you didn't, then you're screwed. Okay, so... <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's impossible to uh, talk about this movie without, you know, mentioning this stuff. So, I mean, I think just getting that out of the way, now that hopefully you people who haven't seen it at home have come back and watched it, I will just go right ahead and say it. Um, This is a monster movie. Um, So, uh, the UFO in the movie is not a spaceship. It is a giant creature that is uh, eating people. And um, we eventually do get to see uh, it, it, you know, its final form or whatever, which is uh, like a crazy giant jellyfish thing. Um, so think like Dogura or um, uh, the Angels and Evangelion, and you're on the right track. Um, so with that out of the way, there it is. That's why we're talking about it. Um, and uh, so there's a lot uh, to kind of get into thematically. Um, like most of Jordan Peele's work, there's a lot of layers to it um, and subtext and, you know, fun little Easter eggs and visual cues. And so there's all kinds of crap that we're, we're going to go through here. Um, uh, but... Um, I think most people at this point know who Jordan Peele is. Uh, it's crazy now because he's like he's like a big horror guy. You know, there's people that don't even realize he was a comedy guy. You know, um, but of course, Key and Peele. I know it's wild. Of course, Key and Peele, the sketch comedy show, um, is what like put him on the map. You know, before that, he was on Mad TV. Very funny man, um, and uh, you know. Uh, just a little bit about him. He is um, half black, uh, black on his dad's side, white on his mom's side. Um, he wears glasses, and uh, he likes wearing plaid shirts. Um, he loves horror, uh, and um, he's not me. So that's not <laughs> why I like him. Well, you let off with saying... I was about to say, are you only bringing up the plaid shirt thing to make him sound more like you? <laughs> You let off by saying he's very funny, so we all knew. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's where we differ. <laughs> I'm not funny or talented. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, I, I, you know, I think when Get Out came out, I don't think people really knew what to expect. And, uh, you know, however people feel about the movie is one thing, but uh, one thing you can say is it really just blew the doors open. Um, and for me, of course, being, you know, um, of, uh, mixed race, um, I've noticed, you know, I, I think that between Get Out and Black Panther, I mean, um, just the idea of movies that successful that were black (laughs) and so celebrated by the mainstream audience, I think has, has helped, um, you know, push for, you know, more diverse storytelling. Um, so I don't know, maybe I'm, you know, being woke or whatever that even means anymore. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, 
a, a very positive impact has been made by um, his success. Um, and then, of course, he made us, which I'm not not. That's the one that I'm like, eh, kind of whatever on. I really like Get Out, and I then there's and, yeah, and then ultimately, there's. I, I know there's a con, there's certainly a contingent of people that are that are us, you know, supporters or whatever, you backers or stands, yeah. as the kids say. But I think ultimately, you know, when people years and years and years and years from now wind up looking back, they're going to be like. Oh, that's the dude that did Get Out, and they'll maybe maybe they'll remember Nope, and maybe they'll remember a few others. Like people it, it, kind of forget. Yeah, it, it'll be like um, when you talk about George Romero. I, no one talks about like the Crazies. I like yeah. the Crazies, but it's like okay, this is like an early movie of his that is fine, but it's whatever. Like, but you know, people are like, oh, you know, No Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Creep Show. Like that's George Romero. Like, um. Uh, and, and between me being pretty lukewarm on us and then, um, some of the projects that he's been involved with as either a co-writer or a producer, like his, um, the Twilight Zone reboot and, uh, the, the Candyman legacy sequel, I guess is the word for it. Um, I was starting to be like, eh, maybe Get Out was just like a one and done, like maybe he just blew his wad on that movie. But then I saw Nope and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm back in. Um, and, uh, one thing that, uh, is cool about Nope is it's, it's the first horror movie to be shot in, like, IMAX format, um, 65 millimeter film, you know, so it, it, I mean, uh, I know digital is starting to, like, it's not starting to, it does look great now, but I still, I can always... There's just a an element to film visually where I can always tell, and I'm always like, "This just looks better." <laughs> That's my opinion. Um, but uh, the cinematographer that he got is uh, Hoyta van Hoytema. Um, that's for people who don't know. That's Christopher Nolan's go-to cinematographer um, because, and because of that, he's like the most experienced with the IMAX format. Um, and uh so that is why he's on here and i mean the, the the movie itself just looks great um and so that is uh partially why um and yeah i i mean if if you read up on like how they use the IMAX cameras and stuff like getting like nerdy and technical for a minute IMAX cameras are notoriously difficult to use and um uh, but they they were they did some pretty insane and innovative stuff with it. Um, like for the night scenes, there were two different cameras used. There was one that just was for infrared light, um, and another that captured thirty five or I'm sorry, uh, seventy millimeter film, and they like overlaid the images. Um, really, just crazy stuff um, that only film nerds would like geek out about. But um, but also, I mean, it's cool because it's so complicated and nuts um anyway so like i said yes this is a uh a giant monster movie even if you don't know it <laughs> for the first 70 minutes or whatever um and uh it it's unfortunate that the 
this, I mean, this movie was successful. You know, people I talk to, just random folks in everyday life, have seen it. But um, it's weirdly been kind of slept on by the kaiju fandom, which is in no part unsurprising. It's one of those things where it's like, yeah, it's, I'm not surprised, but I'm still disappointed. Um, <laughs> granted, no one knew the movie. It wasn't advertised as a monster movie. That's like the big twist of it or whatever. But like, I don't know. It's not up to the, it's not the movie's responsibility. You know, it's us, the fans. It's of been movies. out for a minute now. Yeah, it's our it job just to get a review in G fan. Yes, for uh, what it, that's worth. Yeah, and, and that's good. I know G fan isn't what it used to be. I haven't bought a G fan in a while, but I am glad that there's actually a review in there because it's the first, to my knowledge, it's the first like thing in the kaiju circle that's like recognized like oh this would actually probably appeal to like godzilla fans and stuff um so that's i don't know we're just kind of doing our part to say like hey like go check this out it's really worth it um so uh i guess um uh i don't know i wouldn't mind doing a plot summary since I'm on a roll here. Um, so we follow um, a brother and a sister who manage uh, Haywood's Hollywood Horses. And so they are horse trainers, basically, for Hollywood productions, um, led by OJ, played by Daniel Kalua, and Emerald, um, his sister, played by Kiki Palmer. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's a family business. Um, the, uh, the dad, played by Keith, ha- uh, Keith, uh, the Keith David, I almost got his actor name mixed with his character name. Um, he dies very suddenly when a nickel falls out of the sky and goes through his skull. So they are left figuring out what to do with the family business. Um, their legacy in Hollywood is um, that uh, as far back as movies have been made they've been involved, um, and that is where um, the the movie itself um, shows and talks about the actual clip known as the uh, My Bridge clip, which is pretty much the first moving picture, and it is of a black man riding a horse. I'm sure you've seen it. It's very famous. Um, of course, uh, in real life, nobody knows who the man on the horse is, um, uh, but for the movie, they kind of made up this storyline that he's like their great, great, great grandfather on the horse. And so that is why they have the family business. Um, OJ is more introverted. Um, he really doesn't, he's not very good at talking to people. He's uh, kind of a more anxious, reserved type. Um, and so um, his sister Emerald is the one that does most of the talking. And we're introduced to them in this fun scene where he's kind of like, they're supposed to give this training session um, on this movie that uh, one of their horses is being used for. And he's kind of stuttering and stammering because his sister is late and she ends up taking over the speech. And you see right there the dynamic between the two. And she's super charismatic and fun. And he's just like a stumbling, bumbling, you know, awkward guy. Um, And, uh... Due to uh, the actress in this movie, the horse kind of freaks out, and they get fired from the job, and um, so they're left, you know, okay, we need to figure things out, make some money, 
So they go to a theme park run by a uh, child actor um, played by Steven Yeun. His character is Jupe. And um, he is famous for, in the 90s, starring in some ve- a fake, you know, very 90s-looking like kids' adventure movie. Uh, kind of something like, you know, think of like The Goonies or something. And um, he, it was like a, 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 a Western with him as like the kid cowboy character, and it was like a big sensation. And now he runs a theme park that's Western themed, and um, in, and and so uh, our sibling uh, lead characters they go and they um, they basically sell him uh, the horse from earlier, and OJ's like you know once we can get some more work we'll buy the horse back and. Um, so Jupe's Park has the horse now, and it turns out um, he has a little kind of mini museum dedicated to a horrific incident that he witnessed as a child um, on the set of the fictional sitcom Gordy's Home, in which the uh, there's a chimp animal star uh, that uh, one day just snapped and... Uh, killed a bunch of people on the set and mangled uh, one of the actresses, and Jupe was, like, the only person that was left un- unharmed, basically. And he has this mini-museum at his theme park just dedicated to essentially exploiting that famous incident. So, um, you know, there's, you know, the the clothes Gordy was wearing and all this stuff, and he, he talks about how SNL did a, a skit about it because it was so famous, and um, so you see this guy is kind of, um, uh, he's a, an exploiter of spectacle, essentially. Um, so while that's going on, um, around the Haywood farm, they have noticed, you know, uh, horses disappearing, and OJ sees what he thinks is a spaceship. Um, and he starts to just notice more weird things, like uh, there's a certain cloud in the sky that he notices hasn't moved, um, and every now and then you hear really strange, like, screeching sounds from the sky, and he's like, yeah, that's, you know, like, weird. So they they go and... Um, There's electronic stuff going on, too. Yeah, 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 because it, it has, uh, like, an, uh, an EMP, EMP yeah. And so they go to um, a Fry's Electronics, and they get this, like, home security system where they can like watch everything. And it's like, okay, if there is like an alien ship, we should get this on camera because like, that'll like help us get out of, you know, this debt, you know, and, and, you know, we can make some money and like, you know, we can be famous. And, uh, um, so, uh, they, they go to Fry's and it just turns out conveniently (laughs) that the, the uh, the guy helping them that does their install uh, is a guy named Angel who happens to be like a huge UFO nerd, and so he like starts to get obsessed with what's going on around their farm, and he's watching, you know, from like work, <laughs> he's like watching their closed circuit cameras and stuff, and eventually, uh, you know, he becomes friends with them and is kind of like on this journey together, um, and then uh, so this is where the movie kind of takes a turn. You're like, okay, this is completely different from what I thought I was watching. Um, so uh, it turns out that 
um, Jupe has been using his horses to come out at a certain time of day where the aliens, who he calls, I think, the spectators, will abduct the horse. Um, and that is the quote-unquote contract he has with the UFO. Um, just like the contract that these sitcom makers had with Gordy was that Gordy was going to act as scripted. Um, knowing what I told you about the UFO not being a ship, um, animals will do erratic things. So uh, instead of sucking up the horse, um, the UFO sucks up Jupe and his family and all of the spectators, and uh, there's a extremely horrific <laughs> scene of them inside of this creature. Um, and that is where we get the official reveal that this is a monster. Um, and uh, so um, to basically help them get this on film, they enlist the help of um, a guy named Antles Holst, which is a cinematographer played by Michael Wincott, and he is going to try and help them capture this impossible image. And that's all I'll say about the plot line for now because I've been talking enough, um, and you know we'll get into more specifics. Um, but uh, but that's that's kind of the setup here, and um, like I said, not at all what. Uh, you know, I think any of us really expected. Um, and uh, we get a cool monster. Um, so I've been yammering enough, so um, I'll, uh, I'll, you know, we'll toss the mic around just for our overall uh, first impressions and, and kind of just how we feel. Um, Tom, I'll let you go first. Okay. Yeah, so it is cool how it's like a, not what you expect, but yeah, I I like I have this complicated relationship with Jordan Peele as a director, and I put that all in kind of quotes because I don't really have a relationship with him, obviously. Um, and you know, I just I saw Get Out and Us each once, and I mo- just moved on, and more so with Us, like I think I mentioned, it just I. I don't even really think it's a good movie. I I kind of enjoyed some of it, but I don't think it's like yeah. a good It's well movie. made. It's just one of those things where like the more you think about the writing, like the script and the twist and stuff, the more you're like, "Wait." Yeah. You know, and it's the M Night problem, which which to his admission, Jordan Peele is like a huge M Night fan. So yeah. us us was him channeling M Night in the ways that aren't great <laughs> yeah and and uh <clears throat> yeah i just uh so i went into this like really not knowing how i was gonna feel about it although thinking it was gonna be one kind of thing i really thought it was gonna be like an alien and alien abduction movie and uh thanks to some conversations that were had that were ultimately not spoilery but um, between people who had seen the movie before I did, I really thought it was going to be something very different than it was uh, because it was, it was bird Kyle, you and uh, Danny, our buddy Danny had gotten out of the movie and we're talking about like chimps nonstop. <laughs> and I was, and I was like, 
this is going to be like some weird kind of twist where like it turns out that the aliens are actually like super intelligent chimps, you know? Um, and I, I, I just thought it was like, I thought that was actually, I wouldn't mind seeing that movie by the way, if someone <laughs> wants to make that movie. But, uh, I was like, Oh, Planet of the apes, Tom. Well, yeah, obviously <laughs> the Tim Burton the version specifically, the ending <laughs> of the Tim Burton version, <laughs> but as an R rated horror movie, but, um, but so I thought it was going to be like this alien abduction, alien invasion kind of movie. And then it completely swerves you. Um, and it's a movie that I had some issues with and we can dig into some of them more a little bit, but you know, the pacing and, um, some, uh, some of the commentary and stuff that we're going to talk about. I know I honestly didn't think he pushed it far enough. Um, but I, but it's really well made. It's taut. It's tense, and that's one thing I'll say about all his movies: are they are all really well made. And then this one, maybe more than any of them, is like a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And for me, it scratches a lot of the itches that I just need scratching on. And it's a complete kind of comfort food for me type of movie. It's one of those movies. And, and I say comfort movie, just dis, co- despite it having like two of the more unnerving scenes in any movie <laughs> that, that I've seen in a long time. Um, but it's it's that kind of movie where I weirdly felt in a way like I've seen this before, but in a good way. While I was watching it for the first time, like mm-hmm. I just felt like, oh, this is this is my jam. This is like this is a. This is something that's like just wrapping me in a big blanket and giving me a hug of a chimp eating my face off. Uh. <laughs> it's one of those movies that's like what we used to get a lot more like in the 80s and 90s where it was like this mid-budget, not yeah. like original IP that you would just go and it would be like a crowd-pleasing experience and it wasn't a billion dollars of CG on a green screen, and this movie does. I mean, obviously the this monsters, movie's got tons of CG out the ass. So. Well, <laughs> some uh, stuff like like Gordy can Gordy has to be CG now, <laughs> and uh, yeah. the uh, the UFO and the and monster and stuff are obviously CG. But you know they they shot out in the desert, and you know there's a big set piece. It's all practical, and yeah, there's a tactility to it for sure. <clears throat> And so yeah, it's 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 a uh, it's an eighties mid budget monster movie made with twenty twenty two sensibilities, and it's uh, we've had a few of those kind of come out recently that to me are like the best possible version of that, um, where it it is just kind of a simple stripped down sort of straightforward like fun monster movie, and this one obviously skews more into the the R territory and so it's not all maybe super fun and 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 lighthearted necessarily um but yeah it's it's just it still stays true to what made those kinds of movies great which was an emphasis on uh the characters and how the monster impacts them and not just showing off all the cool things that you can do with cool effects, which this movie does, mm-hmm. but it's not what it's only about. Yeah. 
Um, and I liked it a lot. Uh, out of it. I know Justin has probably um, the least Jordan Peele fan of the three of us, just because I know you know neither of his previous two movies he really liked, but this one, I mean he, I mean he, he messaged me multiple times like, "Look, when are you talking about Nope? I want to talk about Nope." <laughs> so I, I know he liked it. So so Justin, obviously you went into this as you know less of a peel champion than me and you know even tom and you you really liked the movie so i just how would you kind of explain you know your first reaction to it and you know how it clicked with you yeah i mean so um you know i i feel you know what you were saying earlier bird when you were kind of describing your relationship to jordan peele's um career and that you know you weren't you didn't like um us, it felt like him taking the wrong lessons from M. Night Shyamala, and um, and then there was his uh, his Candyman movie, which I saw um, that I didn't really care for. Yeah. Um, I thought there were some interesting ideas in there, but I didn't like the execution overall. And then, um, you know, Get Out is a movie that I, I, you know, it. It's the film, what I always say, with, with relevance to kind of, you know, this being the Kaiju Transmissions podcast, you know, um, you know there, there's an there's a infamous review, I guess, by Roger Ebert for the original 1954 Godzilla, <laughs> where he talks about how he understands that this is a film that's being used to help the Japanese people deal with the trauma of the Second World War, but that's so alien to anything in his experience and it doesn't the the execution of it being a, a guy in a rubber dinosaur suit smashing a model city doesn't help him understand what that experience is like mm. and and i always thought that just sounded you know kind of crazy by ebert and <laughs> well now that, you get it <laughs> now i get it with with uh get out because that was that movie where i was like i understand that Jordan Peele is trying to say something about being black in America. And as a white person, I'm never going to understand what that is. And I'm interested in understanding it, but this movie is not personally helping me understand mm. it because it just feels so weird and goofy and over the top that I'm, I'm not, you know, and, and you're not that, alone with that. Like yeah. I, I, like I've, I've explained get out to a lot of white people <laughs> at this point. So, so, so obviously when you, I mean, you work at a theater, so I don't know, you, I, you might just be like, oh, I'll see whatever. But, you know, I have a feeling that this movie wasn't what you expected. And I, I didn't know what to expect really going into, going into Nope. I knew that it had something to do with UFOs and because I have an interest in, uh, in the paranormal and that kind of stuff like that intrigued me. Um, I felt like it was maybe going to have something to do uh, with the sort of more recent stuff that's been in the news regarding uh, UFOs, um, which they do allude to, right? Mm -hmm. the whole yeah, they do mention that, yeah. Um, the whole A-tip thing. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, I, I really, I, I had no idea what it was actually going to, to turn out to be. Um, and, you know, and so, yeah, but, you know, actually my girlfriend was the one who was really, really excited to go see it. Um, you know, she had liked 
Jordan Peele's. She's liked Jordan Peele's work more than I have. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that was actually a thing. Um, You know, right now we're not living in the same state uh, because of me being in, in my doctoral program. But she had come up at the end of July for my birthday, which is when the movie was in theaters. And so we were able to go see it together. Um, and that, that was the thing was, you know, I, you know, I was just, I was really, really taken with it. Like I, um, you know, and, and, you know, one, one of the things, one of the things about it is, cause I'm, I, I know this is something that you wanted to, to talk about, I think a little bit later, um, maybe, but, you know, one of the things I loved about it was I, I loved how it before, before even the monster stuff was revealed, I loved how Peel was working to kind of, you know, connect the characters to the history of cinema, that stuff you talked about mm-hmm. with yeah. the, um, you know, the, the, horse the, jockey, you know yeah. the horse jockey and everything and and do this, you know, because I, I, I didn't know that. Right. As somebody I mean, I teach intro to film and I didn't know that that was actually a, a black guy on that horse. And I was like, that's so cool. You know, um, you know, this this reminder that like, yeah, you know, people of color have been integral to the film industry since the very beginning, um, you know, and, and we just haven't, you know, given them the proper due that they deserve. Um, and I, I loved him bringing that in and kind of reminding people of that. Um, and, you know, integrating that into the characters and stuff and this whole idea of, you know, them, yeah, they're running this, you know, uh, you know, black owned horse ranch out of Hollywood. Uh, and then, and then of course, you know, then the UFO stuff starts in and I was really enjoying all of that. And then, of course, when, as we've talked about, when it turns into basically a, a monster movie where, you know, suddenly we realize that the UFO is alive, that it's some sort of creature, um, you know, I was just, I was really blown away by that. I was like, wow, that was not something <laughs> that I was, I was expecting, but that's so cool um, that he, that he went that route. And I'm, I'm probably going to have more to say about that later. Um, yeah. but you were overall, like that Vince McMahon meme where like yeah. <laughs> they're like there's a new th- with with each thing on people know what I'm talking about. I'm gonna sound crazy describing it, but like like each thing is like a, there's a series of images and next to each one is like his face like right, right, getting yeah, more yeah. excited and then it just ends with him like falling over. <laughs> this is yeah, I this is my favorite. Um, this is my favorite Jordan Peele film. This is my favorite thing that he's done outside of his his strictly comedy work um, so far. And I was actually I was talking to a, a guy who's who's in my cohort who you know I guess for for context is also black. Um, he uh, lives also in in Detroit. Probably. Um, well, yeah, I know he lives in Detroit. I was yeah, I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> me, but he, yeah, no, but he, you know, we were talking actually about this the other day, um, cause, uh, right now he's, he's largely, uh, commuting back and forth between the university and, and Detroit. So I haven't seen him a lot this semester, but we were talking, he was on campus the other day and, and, you know, he was like, I wanted to ask you, he's like, you know, you saw Nope, right? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, I really liked it. You know, I think it was Jordan Peele's favorite film. And he says, I, I, he said, I actually agree with you. He's like, I think that it's his first like really mature film where you get this idea that like, you know, with Get Out and Us and even some of the stuff he's worked on as a writer, like Candyman, you can kind of see like he's experimenting. He's kind of feeling things out. He's like, how much horror versus how much humor versus, you know, how do I execute a twist and this and, and then with 
uh, Nope, I really feel in a lot of ways this is his first film um, where it's like, okay, you he had a very clear vision. He knew what he wanted to execute. And I feel like he really accomplished it with, with aplomb. And, and it makes me excited to see what he's going to do next in a way that mm-hmm. his previous films haven't because you know now i'm like okay i feel like you know I, I really feel like you know jordan peele has like a really firm grasp on what he's doing so yeah but that's yeah that's me um all right matt um you're up <laughs> uh i really enjoyed this movie and i think one of the things that peele does in this film is like all the characters feel very believable and mm-hmm. real and they all have like their place which is something we just honestly we just we often miss in like your hollywood temple kind of movies now because they're all just you get a, a thousand characters crammed into a five-hour movie and none of them have value or meaning but like every character in this feels like they they have the right to be in the movie they all have a purpose and for me there's something incredibly relatable about the uh fries electronics guy like if you worked in retail and we're talking we're like we're recording this the week before thanksgiving to all these poor like <laughs> black friday retail workers like you can just tell you when you see this guy he's dejected on the job he hates he's basically hating life and i think all of us here have probably worked retail in some capacity mm-hmm. and when you have worked retail, you look at that guy and, and you're like, yep, I, I totally get it, dude. Like, that's exactly how I felt when I was working retail. And there's something about every one of the characters that I think you can look at and be like, yep, that makes sense. I totally understand how that person feels that way. And every every person in this has a little like niche. They have a little quirk. And we've talked about it on the podcast. I like uh, Kaneko does that really well in all of his movies. And this is a movie where every single character was like, oh, this is this feels like a real actual person with actual motivations and like a sense of pathos. Um, And I think that was like the thing that initially draws you in, because like the first half of the movie, there's things that happen, but you don't have that reveal about the monster until a little bit later. And when that finally does happen, it kind of blows you away. And so it was just it's a really well thought movie with like very harrowing moments i mean like we talked about the feeding scene like that is was gen- that was genuinely upsetting to see, like <laughs> when all those people yes. are just getting like enveloped and eaten and like it's it's really harrowing but in kind of the best way like it's it's upsetting but there's such like a i don't know visceral appeal to it that it's just it i don't know this movie is um it's a lot of fun but also like it makes you think yeah and how many monster movies like how many giant monster movies have we seen recently where like there's not much to think about you're <laughs> just there to, like <laughs> well you know what I mean. <laughs> not many <laughs> well and that that's the point like i think i think this movie has a lot to say about a, a lot of different things and mm-hmm. you know i can appreciate that i uh yeah no i mean uh, i mean uh, if anyone couldn't tell from my rambling intros and stuff uh i i really like this movie i i watched it once in the theater i watched it at home uh i loved it in the theater i loved it even more the second time um and uh i look forward to just being able to watch it whenever now um and yeah i mean cool monster cool concept a lot of you know stuff kind of themes to think about but uh yeah it's really just the it's i mean the characters are great i mean I we we got to give it up to the the 
the whole cast. I mean, um, Steven Yoon is great. Uh, Michael Wincott and Keith David show up, and they're always awesome, you know, character actors, both with the two of the best voices in the world. Yeah. Um, uh, Brandon Perea, the guy that plays the Fry's um, guy, Angel, um, he's like a newer actor. Um, and I mean, if he doesn't get a crap ton of offers after this, then someone's asleep at the wheel. And um, of course, I I'm I gotta save it just for last. Daniel Kaluuya, Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer. I mean, we gotta talk about how great these two are. Um, and they feel like like the performances are great, and they feel like very like a very real brother and sister. And um, they do. And they're they're like completely opposite personalities. You know, I think a lot of screenwriters, when they write siblings, they're like, oh, you know, they're, like, really similar. But it's like, this is how real siblings kind of are more. Like, me and my brother are completely different. Like, completely opposite to the point where when we were kids, my mom had to get pulp-heavy orange juice for him and pulp-free orange juice for me. Like, that's that's how people are in life. And just... I mean, they're so good. I mean, Kaluuya's been around, and I mean, Kiki Palmer's been around too, but not not in stuff as high profile, I don't think. And once again, I mean, if 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 these two don't just shoot up to a list movie stardom after this, then pff, I don't know. Someone's messing up somewhere because I mean, I just I just love them, and um, and you know, the whole time I was just thinking like. What if we had like a Godzilla movie with characters like this? You know, you could have just stopped at characters. <laughs> <laughs> but I, they're fantastic. Um, uh, and then a uh, fun piece of trivia: the guy that plays Gordy is uh, Terry Notary, who's a mocap actor. But he basically just his specialty is primate. So he was King Kong in. Skull Island, and he was um, Rocket in the Planet of the Apes trilogy. And, I mean, he's been all kinds of chimps and apes and monkeys and stuff. Um, but, yeah, that that's the thing that really just seals it, is, like, these characters are just so... They're very relatable, and they're just so much fun to watch. And um, Stephen Yoon, even... I mean, he's always been a solid actor, but... He gives Jupe. I mean, we, you you recognize that Jupe is exploiting tragedy and just kind of being like kind of that greedy capitalist, like you know, I guess just someone that is tr- making a buck however he can. But there's there's subtleties in his performance where it's all he's also sympathetic. It's almost like he never got he never moved past the Gordy incident and even though he's exploiting it, it's also kind of like he's stuck in this trauma loop. Well, he's, I mean, I don't know if you want to save this, this for later or not, but I mean, the thing about Jupe's character, I think is that what's fascinating about his character is that he's so, um, he's obviously so fundamentally deluded, right? Like he, he's come out of this traumatic experience that happened to him as a child with, with the chimp Gordy. 
and he was the only person um, who who came out, you know, physically um, unscathed, right? And and you see in that you know that particular flashback where you see the scene where you know Gordy, um, you know, uh, you know, lashes out. Um, I don't I don't like saying you know Gordy goes crazy or something. Would you say he went ape shit? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe bananas. Um, <laughs> there you go. But no, I mean, because he's he's an animal, right? He's he's a, and and that's kind of like I think one of the whole real key ideas in, in this film that I'm sure we'll we'll come back to, right? Is that there's this notion about you know humans interactions with animals and the uh, and wild animals in particular, yeah. and this idea that you know um, that that I you know I, I see this this interesting through line in in all of Jordan Peele's work, regardless of you know, whether, you know, how much I've, I've enjoyed it personally. Um, it's an interesting through line where, you know, there's this, um, subtle, almost kind of critique in a way of sort of fundamental kind of Judeo Christian religious notions. And I think you see that, you know, he, he kind of nods to that by the fact that, um, uh, at least I know definitely in us and in this movie he opens with Bible verses. Mm-hmm. I don't think that happened in Get Out, um, but uh, you know there's that there's that you know longstanding uh, Judeo-Christian idea that you know mankind is the sovereign over all other animals, right? We're supposed to somehow be in charge of every other uh, species on the planet, um, and and one of the things that this and this mo- is one of those movies. And it falls into kind of a long history of, of like animal attack films going back to, you know, the the birds or or even something like King yeah, Kong. King Kong, right? Is this idea of like, well, no, actually, you're not. You're not the top of the food chain, um, and and you know, so so in this this context, right? You know, um, you know that that should have been the lesson that Jupe took away, right, from this incident. Was like, okay, you know, this chimp is not going to to do whatever we tell it to do. Or I know, um, I know Peel has also said like a big influence on this film was a uh, Jurassic park, yep. right? The original. And there's that classic line in there where Ian Malcolm is talking once again about chaos. And he, when they're waiting for the, the T-Rex to show up and he says, you know, that's the thing about an animal. It doesn't uh, follow your schedules or park plans or anything. It's going to do what it wants. Um, and, and so, you know, that should have been the lesson that Jupe took away from this, but instead, no, he thinks that he's somehow almost like chosen by the universe, right? That he, he is the master of the beasts or something. Yeah. He, 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 he becomes Carl Denham essentially. Right. Yeah. He, yeah. Well, he's one of two characters in this movie that I think are kind of Carl Denham ish. And yeah, but so when this UFO shows up and he seems to realize before everybody else that it's some kind of animal, he thinks that he can, you know, exact this, this same kind of relationship. And that's, that's the exact opposite of, um, of what happens with OJ where, you know, OJ is someone who has spent his life around animals as a horse trainer and, you know, horses aren't even predators, right. Or, or, you know, animals that we might consider as, um, naturally aggressive as chimpanzees, but he still realizes that a horse is going to do what a horse wants to do and it's not about a horse because (laughs) it's a horse and it's not about you forcing your will on the horse. It's about you being in a relationship with it. 
right? And, yeah. And so that's that's the difference between between those two characters. Yeah. But yeah. He's he's yeah. Jupe is so deluded in his his perspective. Yeah. So yeah. That's, it, think, it makes a lot of sense that OJ is the one that first notices that it's not a ship, and then also realizes if you don't look at it, it won't eat you. Um. You know, it, there's little, like, subtleties in there that, that, like, you know, I really think this is a guy that probably relates to animals more than he does people. And, you know, at the beginning of the movie, you have, like, he's like, okay, don't look the horse in the eye. Don't don't look it in the eye. Don't, that, you know, okay, what do you do? You, you looked in the eye. Great. <laughs> you know? Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, but, yeah, I, I, the Jupe really is where the theme the biggest theme of the movie is, which is exploitation of spectacle and just the nature of spectacle and the human. It's very human, and it's like a human flaw to be that we are just naturally we love spectacle. And he he said that he made this as both a love letter to spectacle movies and why we love spectacle, but also a little bit of a critique. Like, hey, maybe sometimes we shouldn't be so attracted. Um, to spectacle, and yeah, you you really get that with you know um, the jupe stuff, and and you really get into things like um, how he's exploiting this what the movie would call a bad miracle. You know, he says at one point he says to his uh, OJ says to Emerald, you know, what's a bad miracle? Something that's not supposed to happen that does that's bad. And, you know, we, we see at the beginning of the movie, during the Gordy attack, there's, like, a, the woman's shoe that's, like, standing on its tip. Like, that's a miracle. A bad miracle. You know, so is this <laughs> creature. Um, and Jupe has exploited that miracle, essentially. And um, and then, you know, you could you could... There's a lot of, like cues in there that even are just like fun little subtextual things like um at the end when they're actually trying to like um lure out the ufo and like a tmz guy like comes through like his helmet is basically the same as the uh the vfx stick that the horse reacts to at the beginning like the just a spherical reflective circle um the uh there's a scene um where Jupe's kids, like, basically go mess with OJ because, you know, they, they you know, don't like what they're doing, essentially. Um, and they're dressed like these aliens, and they, they also dress like that at Jupe's theme park for what's the, uh, um, the Star Lasso experience, which is the alien uh, event that he hosts. Um, and uh, the, the, hel- the masks or whatever that they wear as aliens look the same as um, uh, film camera cartridges. Um, so uh, there's stuff like that in there. And then, of course, if you look at the UFO and look into uh, the middle, which is like the circle, the black circle that it sucks people up in, that's you know when it knows you're there and it eats you, basically almost like an eye. And it goes into the, you know, if you don't look at this thing, if you don't look at this crazy thing, there won't be a problem. So kind of a almost like don't feed the troll kind of kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of layers to this movie as you as you peel it back. Uh, 
as Jean Jacket peels itself back. Yeah, I don't um, think we've I don't think we called it Jean Jacket yet. Yes, the monster's name is Jean Jacket. So yeah, we can, we can and that's that. based that's in the movie that's based off of a uh, <clears throat> a story that that OJ and uh, and what's her name again? Emerald. Emerald, kind of share in bits and pieces with each other back and forth of like their perspective on it is <clears throat> when they were kids, their dad had a horse named jean jacket and it was like a really difficult horse to break, to tame. And, you know, they, they each kind of share their own experiences and it, it just gives more light to their characters. But, Yes, the difficulty of breaking Jean Jacket. They then decide to call the Sky Monster Jean Jacket. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it uh, as as there's there's just there's a lot to to peel apart with this movie. Um, yeah, going back to the the spectacle thing. Um, I don't know. If if this is a, a good time to is this a it's like almost a good time to kind of transition into the uh, the chimps in Hollywood discussion. Well, before but. we get into Gordy, I think there's a we mentioned that this we mentioned this movie has some like unnerving stuff in it, and for me to say because I watch anything, I, what was that movie that you guys watched uh, on Netflix and you were like it's a gore fest it's so fucked up and then i watched it and i was like eh, it's not it's not that gory what was that the, was it the night comes for yeah us? yeah yep yep the Indo- was that Indo- the indonesian movie I think. yeah anyway so so yeah that's for the me movie to- that you're insane for thinking wasn't super <laughs> violent <laughs> so because for- dudes get stabbed through the neck with broken <laughs> beer bottles and then blood shoots out of their spurt holes and drown other people in the blood and you're like this is like pretty tame <laughs> there's a you're crazy for think i was talking and realized i was on mute you're crazy for thinking that wasn't a bloody movie like there's disembowelments and it's insane so point being for me to say something like bothered me <laughs> it, it, it it's the highest compliment i can give a horror movie <laughs> um and for real like if i'm like f- uncomfortable and like can't stop thinking about like how messed up a concept or a scene is like that is the highest praise I can give a horror movie. And so the Gordy stuff, which we'll get to, cause there's a whole thing that there, but the, the, the scenes of Gordy's rampage are truly chilling. And then, um, so the nature of Jean jacket is he sucks up his food, which is people, animals. And, um, the first time we see that, we actually get what's basically a view of people sliding like through his esophagus almost, and they're they're just covered in goo and screaming, and everyone's like confused, and it's extremely claustrophobic. It's almost like the scene in Akira where like the guy's stuck in the the monster, and it's like closing in on him, but it's like live action, and there's like women and children and no one knows what's going on and they're just there's this viscera and it's only i mean that 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 little part is like to maybe 10 15 seconds of footage and it was like seared into me 
like, and just like really like disturbing to me. And then later it's paid off and made even more disturbing when you realize the sound that you've heard this whole time when Jean Jacket is flying is screams, whether it's horses or people or whatever. And basically people are left to essentially be slowly digested altogether in his belly. And then once he has got any kind of nutrients he needs out of them, he squeezes them alive and basically crushes them. And the, the stuff that he doesn't feed off of just drips out of them. And whether that's, you know, metal objects like keys or whatever, or just blood. And so we have this, this scene in the rain where he's essentially digesting people over the house. And you can hear the people screaming first, and you hear people saying things like, someone help, like, you know, is there any, can anyone hear me? And then suddenly you just hear this, like, <clears throat> and then, like, he just, like, rain just drips all over this house. And um, it's just, that that scene just, I mean, from a filmmaking point of view, is just a master class of, like, horror filmmaking but just the concept alone is like like shook me <laughs> the the idea that you know imagine being sucked into this big thing and you're just in this probably smelly dark gooey place with a bunch of strangers and you have no idea what's going on and you're just slowly being digested and it's like the goofball from key and peel thought is this fucked up enough that he thought of this like <laughs> I love this man. He's sick, but that's great. Um, and then uh, the Blu-ray has a making of documentary. Remember those? Um, that's <laughs> actually pretty good. And like they, they actually shot that like all practically. There's that's not CGI rain. It's not CGI blood. Like, and that's an actual house that they built from the ground up on like a like a hill, like in the mountains, and um, it literally had rain like blood all over it but um i know justin has a couple things about that but i just want to like are we all on the raining blood love train here yes absolutely i will say the um the only (laughs) I, i i i do really like the movie um the only part of it I remember when I, I walked out of it that when me and my girlfriend were talking about that we thought was funny is that um, you have the raining blood scene and then, you know, the house for the rest of the movie is stained with all of this blood. But there's a point where Emerald is like watching the news and they're talking about how police still have not figured out what's happened to all the people that disappeared <laughs> from Jupe's ranch. And I'm like, there is a house, the next closest house <laughs> down the road is covered with blood. How have you not checked this out yet? <laughs> but that's the, that's the only thing, but yes, it's a disturbing scene. Yeah. It's very, uh, it's very upsetting. Yeah. No, I, that, it messed me up in just the most beautiful way. Um, uh, so yeah, Justin. I guess I guess you were saying there that is like a the you know blood rain and metal objects falling from the sky is uh, like that is like a I guess a phenomenon that's happened or alleged is alleged to have happened. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah. So do you, you have the, the Blu-ray already for this movie? Mm-hmm. Kyle? So is there anything, I know that there's not an audio commentary. No, it, right? I wish there was. Yeah. I'm pretty sure get out has one, but uh, the making of disc is really good, but there's no, or the making of doc is, is really good, but there's no commentary. So is there anything in the making of doc? I'm curious, like, uh, about Peel talking about being at all influenced by actual like paranormal stuff? Not so much. Uh, it's more just, I mean, he talks about some of the more like the social themes, like the spectacle and stuff like that. And um, a lot of the other stuff is just like technical, you know, here's how we made the movie stuff. Um, that would be cool though. Cause I mean, you know, Peel's a smart guy. I'm pretty sure he's in tune with a lot of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, this is one of those films that when I, I saw it, I was like, you know, I had a hard time believing um, that Jordan Peele was not well read in this kind of material. Um, he re- seems like the, the kind of guy the, that when he has ideas for a movie, like he I'm, he probably he seems like the kind of person that probably hits the books hard. So I, I yeah, would think so. I, I would I would imagine so. I mean, it could also be a coincidence i i think back always to like you know we're all fans uh, here of the the 2010 film troll hunter and i know there's an interview that i've read with uh andre overall the the writer and director of that movie where you know he was asked like how much inspiration did you take from like you know actual like bigfoot hunters and stuff and he was like that's a thing what? <laughs> so um but but yeah so so what's really interesting what was really interesting to me about nope is so I would describe Nope as like an almost perfect um, Fortean film. And I know that's a term that uh, people might not be familiar with. So um, it refers to, you describe something as Fortean, it basically means the same thing as calling it paranormal, but it has a little bit of a a different connotation because um, it comes from this guy, Charles Fort, who was an American. He was from New York. He was born in 1874 and and would eventually die in um, 1932. But but what's really interesting is that, you know, Fort had a lot of really off-the-wall theories about all of this kind of stuff. It wasn't your sort of conventional explanations for, like, UFOs and monsters and other things. And so one of these is in his third book that, on, that he writes on the paranormal. He writes four books over the course of his life. And the third one, which is is called Low, uh, L-O, and then an exclamation point, which comes out in 1931, um, is the one that really deals a lot with, like, UFOs. And, um, and this is what he says about this, um, quote, unknown luminous things or beings have often been seen sometimes close to this earth and sometimes high in the sky. It may be that some of them were living things that occasionally come from somewhere else, end quote. So Fort, at the, at the very beginning, um, is suggesting this idea that UFOs might be, um, you know, what The the term that you see thrown out, there's sort of two of them, which is um, atmospheric life forms or sky beasts, right? Um, And, you know, those those are the two terms that sometimes get tossed around. But basically the idea that UFOs might be living creatures rather than um, this this idea that they're spaceships. And, you know, this is not something, despite this being at the, you know, sort of the, from literally the guy who kind of creates our notion of the paranormal, this is not something that you see um, replicated a lot in popular culture. This idea of you know the the idea that UFOs are spaceships really seems to have been 
the thing that caught on. And yet when you sort of dig into the history of ufology, it's surprising, you know, the people who kind of keep bringing this idea up. And so, um, one of, so for example, you know, it, it's usually considered that the modern era of UFOs begins on June 24th, 1947. And this is when um, recreational aviator Kenneth Arnold has his famous sighting. He's, he's flying a plane um, over Mount Rainer in Washington state. And he says that he sees nine crescent shaped UFOs um, flying below him. And, uh, and this is of course the story that when it gets printed in the papers and then gets picked up and goes international, this is the account that gives us the term flying saucer, right? Because, um, Arnold said that the objects that he saw uh, moved like a saucer skipping over water. It wasn't that they were saucer shaped. He said they were crescent shaped, but they moved like a saucer being skipped over a body of water. And, um, Arnold wasn't just a one-time witness. He became like deeply invested in UFOs, um, from that point on going forward. And then interestingly enough, towards the end of his life, um, when he was asked what he thought the UFOs were, he he uh, denounced the whole idea that they were spaceships, and he said, quote, that they were living organisms sort of like sky jellyfish, end quote. That was what he had come to believe. Um, but again, this, this sort of was largely ignored except for this one guy. And this is the dude in the, the history of, of ufology who really kind of hitches himself to this notion as this dude, John Philip Besser. We don't really know too much about Besser. We don't know how he got involved in UFOs, why he stopped being involved at a certain point. But we do know that, um, you know, his, his interest seems to start in September of 1949 there in, in, interestingly enough, in Asheville, North Carolina. So my, my home state in Asheville is a city I've spent a lot of time and it's not very far from Charlotte. Um, but there's an article from their newspaper, the Citizen Times, about Besser being in the area investigating what are known as the Brown Mountain Lights, um, which are uh, are sort of claim one of our sort of paranormal claims to fame. They they might be UFOs, they might be ghosts. Nobody knows what they are. They're just these weird lights that are seen around the Brown Mountains. Um, and then uh, later in that same year, um, Besser writes a letter to the Saturday Evening Post. Uh, in response to an article they ran on flying saucers, and uh, and and this is the first thing that's that's known of his that's published, where he says that he thinks that they're what he calls space animals. And then he has several more. At, at this point, he he actually ends up writing several more articles for Fate magazine. He gets the cover in December of 1955, um, and his his last article is in November of 1967. Uh, in which he also speculates that what's known as star rot or sky jelly um, might be the mortal remains of dead sky beasts that have fallen down uh, to the earth. And I, I believe you guys talked about um, a famous uh, example of this from September of uh, 1950, which inspired the movie The Blob, when you yep, guys covered yep, The Blob. Yep. I, I said before that I expected Peel to kind of maybe be um, addressing some of the more recent UFO stuff that's happened in the last couple of years that's been in the news um, and, and regarding the revelations about this Pentagon program called the um, Advanced Aerial Threat Identification Program or ATIP and which and, and this move to rebrand um, UFOs as 
um, UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena. Uh, and I, I won't go into too much detail about that, but it is interesting that, again, that does at least get mentioned in here, not only because it's relevant, but because if you do actually bother to go dig into what's been going on or what what did go on with that Pentagon program, and there's a really good article uh, by a, a really reputable um, UFO researcher, Jason Colavito, that he wrote for the New Republic on this, and I would advise people to go just read his article. But Colavito talks about that apparently what this ATIP program within the Pentagon the conclusion that they came to was also that UFOs were not necessarily spacecraft, but what they described as space poltergeist. Um, so that there's something living, but also somehow kind of immaterial. I do have to mention, because this is kind of one of the arguments that I've made over time in my own work that I've written dealing with the paranormal, is that it seems like all of these ideas first show up somewhere in science fiction. Mm. And in this case... There is a story called The Horror of the Heights from the Strand magazine that was published in November of 1913, which is this exact idea. It's about a recreational aviator who is trying to beat uh, the current record for highest altitude reached, and he succeeds, but in the process discovers that the upper stratosphere stratosphere is full of these weird, almost jellyfish um, like monsters, and this ends up being being his doom. And the neat thing about that story, The Horror of the Heights, is it was written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, so the guy who gave us Sherlock Holmes and The Lost World. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a very good story. I've read it. Um, but yeah, the, and then the one other thing I'll, I'll mention here, that the other connection is, yeah, so Fort, um, you'll, if, you, if you Google Charles Ford and you look at images of him, um, especially art that's been done of him. One of the things you'll often see is depictions of him surrounded by rain. And in the rain, there's usually either fish or frogs mixed in. More so than anything else, right, Fort sort of brand. He was obsessed with stories of weird things falling out of the sky, which, again, um, this movie really leans into. And so, like you said, in the beginning, you have this thing where Emerald and OJ's father is killed by these chunks, uh, this piece of metal that falls out of the sky, um, which of course we later learn is, is something that um, the, the monster couldn't digest. And so it, it, it spit out. Yeah. And, um, but you do have reports. Um, most of this stuff, a lot of stuff that Fort collected was from the 19th century because he was working at the beginning of the 20th century. You do have occasional reports. Uh, the one that, that I kind of immediately thought of uh, based on the scene at the beginning of the movie is there's a famous case um, from the mid-20th century uh, in May of 1959 uh, in Rock Hill, Missouri. Um, uh, metal chains actually fell out of the sky. Um, and there's photos of this. So um, this this apparently actually happened. It's never been explained where these metal chains came from. Uh, so, but then the the other thing, of course, as you just talked about, Kyle, is the really disturbing sequence of blood, and that is um, often. So I have I have sitting here in front of me my dog-eared copy of Jerome Clark's book, The Unexplained, and he has a whole section on. Uh, strange things falling out of the sky, but rains of blood gets its own section because there's just, there's so many of this. <laughs> um, and so there's, 
there's two that I, I wanted to highlight. One, because I just thought that this this was interesting considering um, the sort of connection to uh, you know, sort of the, the black experience in America. So one of the earliest reports of this that we have um, comes from July 1841 uh, from uh, Wilson County, Tennessee. And this was a group of enslaved uh, people working in a field. And they claim that just before noon, a small red cloud suddenly appeared in an otherwise clear sky. And from the cloud fell a shower of blood, muscular fiber, and Ugh. adipose matter. Um, and this was apparently then subsequently um, investigated by a professor of chemistry from the University of Nashville, who uh, confirmed that indeed when he, he went out to this field, it did appear to be uh, blood. And then the other one that I wanted to mention, again, because this uh, ties into my, um, my own home state, is so uh, there was... One from uh, when uh, when was this? Uh, I think eighteen forty nine in uh, on February fifteenth in Simpson County, North Carolina. Uh, there was a rain of flesh, liver, brains, oh, and blood uh, coming again out of a red cloud that was described as being about thirty feet wide. Um, so, and there's there's more of these these kinds of reports and. There's, you know, it's these sort of rains of blood and flesh are something that, um, you know, you either, I guess, you know, it's one of those phenomena that you either you kind of believe them or you don't. But there's never really been any compelling kind of explanation for what causes them or what's going on. This movie is definitely playing with all of those kinds of ideas, and I just find it—I find it really fascinating um, when you when you have a movie like this that actually taps into um, the kind of stuff that people really report in the sort of paranormal literature. And, and I and I saw in your your notes, Bird, that Peel cited both Spielberg's *Close Encounters of the Third Kind* and Shyamala's *Signs* as two other examples, and those are two other movies that are great about that as well. Mm. What do people really report happening to them and then incorporate that into their movies? And I think that's what makes both of those films and this film so unsettling is that, you know, it is, 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 is that it's not necessarily this big kind of over the top independence day style alien invasion movie. It feels oddly enough for a film about UFOs, very down to earth. Yeah. Um, I just learned that flying saucers are not flying saucers. <laughs> well, everything uh, which which has shaken me to my well, yeah core. the ever, the the uh, whole la- <laughs> yeah the the whole like last ten twelve minutes whatever everything you just said is horrifying. First of all, <laughs> I also learned that that flying saucers are Sibozu. <laughs> oh yeah, and that. Uh, Balls can rain from the sky, so Mochiron is on the way. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm by nature, I'm you know uh, more of a skeptic, but like just the idea of alien abduction has always like unsettled me from when I was a kid watching X Files all the way to now. And 
you know, I stuff like Fire in the Sky, like the abduction scene in that movie, like yeah. is like even if you're a skeptic on UFOs, like just the notion of like waking up and finding blood raining from the sky. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, and and just the idea that maybe it's actually a giant animal that is just hungry. I mean, that doesn't help either so dogura's up there yeah dogura yeah i just want to point out like this the idea that ufos were not like ships and that they were in fact animals like i I don't i don't follow the the i don't follow the uso stuff very closely or cryptids at all but the the idea never even occurred yeah i i don't know and it might be more horrifying yeah, I was thinking honestly. that as he was talking. I don't know that I, if I'd heard that before this or not. If I have, it was probably in passing and something I, you know, probably didn't think of. You know, and every now and then, you know, there's a kaiju movie where you know, oh, the first sighting they think it's a UFO, like Rodan or whatever. But the idea that maybe it's just a giant beast, and when there's unexplained sky jelly, it's like they're carcass <laughs> falling on us or whatever <laughs> it's all in it's all it's all crazy and and horrifying um yeah so okay so we we just talked about some some dark and unsettling stuff and before we get into more dark and unsettling stuff that's even uh that's actually a hundred percent based in fact Another thing I want to talk about is a, a smaller theme that is more just something that's baked into the storytelling, and that is uh, Peel saying that he wanted this movie to really show what he called black joy. Uh, so to put that in context... Um, joy is that movie about Jennifer Lawrence Yeah, creating mops. a mop or whatever. Um, no, not that. Uh, <laughs> um so, you know, I don't know how often you guys hear it come up, but one thing that people, um, black people say a lot is we're only needed in movies for a hood movie, comedy, or a slave movie. And essentially, most of the time that there's a black actors or predominantly black cast, it's one of those things, and very oftentimes especially, of course, obviously with the slave movies and the hood movies, they're uh, doing something that showcases black pain, black oppression. And, you know, even like I, I, I kind of gave a shout out to Black Panther for, you know, being the first kind of blockbuster of its kind with mostly black cast and crew. It's still a movie that in its themes and stuff is about the black struggle. And here is a movie that predominantly doesn't really get into much of that. Um, You know, you can extrapolate some things like, oh, you know, the Haywoods have this legacy and they're, you know, they're not really living the greatest, you know. Um, But he, I, I think, you know, what he means is he really just wanted to show black people as people everyday people with everyday normal relationships, sibling relationships, father-son, father-daughter relationships, and really not have all the baggage of, you know, dealing with, you know, how black people fall into classism or, you know, the the racism that they're faced with every day. And he wanted something that showed just black people being normal and happy, and it just happens to be in this horror movie that is 
frequently unsettling. Um, so I don't know that that's again, hopefully another step towards just normalizing, you know, Hey, we can have, you know, a core cast that is not just your, you know, straight white demographic. Um, anyway, that's something that is, is personal to me that I hold dear and I'm appreciative of. So I just kind of wanted to get that out of the way. Um, but you know, we, we've talked about animal exploitation, um, and, uh, you know, we even compared, uh, Jupe a little bit to Carl Denham and, you know, how, you know, he brought King Kong over and thought everything would be fine. It's like, no, you brought a giant crazy beast over and havoc ensued. Um, so, uh, the, the choice to have this, um, kind of, uh, flashback that kind of, bakes the theme of the movie into in more um, about spectacle and stuff and have it be a chimp, uh, that is something that there is a history of that in Hollywood. Um, contrary to popular belief, chimps are, uh, are not the easiest animals to work with. And, um, you don't say. <laughs> and uh, there's a reason why Gordy is an all-CG character in this. Um, so, Tom, let's, let's talk a little bit about, I guess chimps and um uh we're gonna talk about a specific case of a, yeah and this will uh, bring us to the uh, a lot to the spectacle <laughs> yeah a chimp named uh, travis theme yeah of the movie too um so yeah chimps have been used in hollywood in the past and yeah they because they look cute and chimps do look cute but they're dangerous <laughs> animals we've we've talked a lot on on this podcast, I think about how like in, in people who say like, how could Kong fight Godzilla are morons <laughs> because they're dangerous, powerful animals. And he's a gorilla, not a chimp, but apes are dangerous, powerful animals. As of July, 2020 chimps are no longer used in Hollywood productions, but this is after decades of protests from animal rights groups, Hollywood chimps, usually are taken from their mothers right at birth and trained how humans want them to act versus in the wild. The first five years of their life is where a chimp learns a lot from their mothers and they develop psychologically. So that's like humans more or less. Most chimps used in entertainment are juveniles. So they are child slaves. When they (laughs) mature, they become harder to control. They are angsty late teens. (laughs) They then they'll get sold as pets or to unaccredited roadside zoos. So like if you've seen tiger King and all of the horrifying, uh, animal rights uh, violations going on there, think that, and they live out their lives in terrible living conditions, often becoming starved or overweight because they're not being fed the right diet. And there are then chimp sanctuaries dedicated to rescuing chimps discarded by old production studios. Specifically, let's talk a little bit about a chimp whose life and a real-life incident inspired this movie, and that's a chimp named Travis. Travis was an entertainment chimp that became notorious in 2009. 
And I I remember this. I story. do too. He, I do too. Yeah. It was rough. This he was attacked rough same. Yeah. He attacked Charla Nash, the best friend of his owner, Sandra Harold. So throughout the 90s, Travis was in commercials for Coca-Cola, Old Navy. I feel like I remember chimps in Old Navy commercials. Oh, chimps so. were, I mean, it really is very recently that chimps weren't really, real chimps weren't really used. I, I still remember like the Tang commercials with the, yeah, the, yeah I, the, everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. And Travis was also on TV shows like Maury, Maury Povich, uh, back before Maury was just strictly you're not the father <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Uh, Travis was born into a, born to a zoo chimp that had been stolen from Africa and brought to the U S in the seventies. His mother was shot with a tranquilizer after giving birth and he was taken from her when she was unconscious. Uh, His parents, Travis's parents then actually escaped this zoo in 2001 and his mother was later killed by teenage boys after she escaped the zoo. She was lunging at the car, and then the father was recaptured. In 1995, at, at being three years old, Travis was sold, or three three days old, I'm sorry. Travis was sold to Sandra Harold for $50,000 at three days old. And she and her husband raised him in Connecticut, as their son, which is how she referred to him, which is twisted. (laughs) (laughs) Travis never knew what normal life for a chimp was. He watched TV, used the toilets, wore clothes, drank wine with his dinner. Uh, Totally normal. He made he made himself snacks and drinks in the kitchen. You know, go to the fridge, make himself a snack. He literally uh, knew how to use a microwave. Yeah, he he even learned how to drive, and he had stolen the keys to the car multiple times. So even though Sandra thought she'd fully domesticated Travis, she wound up being proven wrong. Yeah, I mean this. As Travis reached adulthood, he retired from show business, and uh, Sandra's daughter and husband had actually both passed away, um, and Travis was all that she had. And then in 2003, he actually had escaped from uh, her car, and he held up traffic for hours in a busy intersection. And the incident um, actually caused, uh, caused the state of Connecticut to pass a law that actually kept that keeps people from owning primates over 50 pounds, but they didn't enforce this on Travis because, you know, she'd had Travis for so long. Um, and at this point he was like eight years old. And then he's also, um, you know, basically developed adult with the strength of five men. So a, a, so a, my, a chimp that is eight years old is as strong as five men. That's terrifying. <laughs> um, by 2009, Travis, He's 13 years old. He becomes morbidly obese, and he actually had developed Lyme disease. Um, and he he started developing more and becoming more prone to erratic behavior. And then, so now he's now he's an overweight chimp with the strength of five men. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so then, on February 16, 2009, Travis seemed uh, kind of agitated, 
and disinterested with his favorite activities. Um, Sandra decides to basically give him a cup of tea and she laces it with uh, Xanax (laughs) (laughs) to settle him down. Um, And then he ends up leaving the house with her keys. And this is where Sandra's friend, uh, Charla Nash, is it, is it Charla or Charla, by the way? The Charla? Charla? Oh, Charla? We're going, Charla? We're, we're, going, we're going with Charla for now. Okay. Uh, so Charla um, came back to, the, to help get him back in the house. And this is where he attacks her. Um, and, you know, Nash, she, she had just had her hair restyled, which possibly could have confused Travis. But she was holding his favorite toy, which was a Tickle Me Elmo. And essentially this causes Travis to snap and he attacks her. Um, Sandra actually like hit him repeatedly with a shovel and it has no effect. So she actually stabs him repeatedly in the back. She calls 911. Um, The responders on the end of the call actually did not believe her until she shouts, he's eating her. Um, And we'll talk about that more a little bit later. But when when the police arrived at the scene... Um, Travis actually attacked the police car and he actually opened the door, tried to get in the car. And that's when he was fatally shot. He staggered back into the house, um, actually into his bedroom and he dies of his gunshot wounds. That nine one one call. I mean, some people might've heard it before, but I mean, it's on YouTube. It's, it is a truly chilling thing to listen to. Like, yeah, yeah. it's, it's crazy. And of course, a bunch of heavy metal bands use samples of that <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> but, I was going to yeah. say, you found your outro music for this. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> uh, her injuries were ho- horrendous. I mean, Travis had, this is awful, by the way, just, just like utterly horrific. Um, Travis had gouged her eyes in, he had ripped off her eyelids, ripped off her nose her ears, her hands had broken most of the bones in her face, had actually scalped her. And then she had lost roughly 50% of the blood in her body. Um, her state was so severe that the doctors who operated her, operated on her that night were actually given counseling. So you're talking about, you know, doctors who see trauma all the time, see the worst kind of stuff, having to go through counseling because of what she looked like after this attack. Um, So Charlotte would later go on to reveal what her face looked like uh, on the Oprah show in November of 20, uh, 2009. This is, that's probably what most people who remember this might be remembering because I mean, speaking of spectacle and exploiting it, that was like, that was a big thing. I remember like the commercials where it's like, you know, showing her lift the veil over her head and it's like, tune in, see this. And, you know, in Emerald and OJ, they always refer to, like, getting their shot of the alien as the Oprah shot. And I, I wonder if that's maybe calling back to how this Oprah, yeah. the Oprah show. I don't basically. think you have to wonder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, I don't think there's wonderment there. Uh, Fifteen months after the attack, uh, Sandra died of an aortic aneurysm. And she was buried with the ashes of her husband and Travis. So and yeah, that's yeah. super uplifting. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, uh, I, I, for posterity's sake, <laughs> if I ever have my entire face ripped off and lose fifty percent of the blood in my body, just let me go. In your hands, <laughs> just let me go the rest of the way. I'm fine with it. 
um, yeah, I, obviously she's blind. Also, I, I mean, I just, we're just I, scratching the surface. I mean, and and if you're interested, like it can be fascinating no, no, stuff. We're not, there, we're not. There's a lot of information <laughs> if you want to like. There's a lot of information and all kinds of stuff online, but. Uh, I mean, the thing I was reading was when the officer showed up at the scene, there were, like, fingers and, like, just chunks of flesh and pieces of her scalp, like, all over the lawn. And, like, yeah. 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 This, is, this is why Bird is not phased by your Indonesian horror movie. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Bird's on, like, up rotten. looking up stuff about chimp attacks. Bird was on, like, Rotten.com back in the 90s, like, <laughs> watching people get murdered. Um <laughs> Yeah, so in, in May of 2011, Charla, or Charla Nash receives transplants for her face and hands. The facial transplant is a success, but unfortunately, her new hands had to be removed due to her develop, developing pneumonia and other complications shortly thereafter. This whole incident intru- influences the introduction of a prime, uh, it's called the, the Captive Primate Safety Act, with the backing of the Humane Society and Wildlife Conservation Society, which completely outlawed the sale and purchase of primates with the exception of helper monkeys. And the incident also inspired 2010 legislation for officers who use justifiable force to kill an animal to have their therapy compensated. So, you know, in the past... (laughs) Do you believe that that guy wasn't okay? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the... So in the in the past, if like uh, a police officer came across, I, I would even think like with with dogs, right? It would be more common. You come across like a dog that has mauled a person, and you kill the dog because it's either coming after you or it's just such a horrifying scene. These these officers who went through that experience and had to seek therapy afterwards did not get paid for that therapy. <laughs> That's like just the American healthcare system, <laughs> right? <laughs> but so, so now since 2010, if you you know if you kill an animal using justifiable force, you're uh, you're allowed to to get therapy for it. But this whole situation, this whole incident, definitely plays into the theme of spectacle of the movie, where. Um, Steven Yuen's character, um, why can't I remember it now? It's It's been like three hours Jupe? since we started recording. Jupe? Yeah, Jupe, Jupe has survived this horrible incident, but so has his co-star. Well, yeah, one the, of his co-stars. Yeah, yeah. The, her, uh, the, she, like the, yeah her, her face is like ripped and off, basically. He, yeah. he is planning on at least partially using her and her endorsement and her appearance at the was it the, the star, star lasso, lasso experience experience yeah. the star lasso experience to help generate buzz and interest in the attraction and in is it called jupe land uh it's jupiter's claim okay yeah. <laughs> jupe land sounds awesome <laughs> that <laughs> but but so he's he's using it and you know there's like when you, the, this is the part of the movie where I felt like he could, like Peel could have pushed this even further because 
it only is vaguely hinted at that he is kind of exploiting her. And I kind of wish he pushed that a little further. I get what you're saying, but I don't agree. But I understand what you're saying. Right. And I just I just think it would hammer it home more and it would make people who think of this whole thing with the chimp and and what it's even doing there. It, it would them spell kind of it out a little that. bit more for people. It would. It, I, but I, I think you could do it without spelling it out too much. It would make all the and dummies would, get it. And it would <laughs> and it would make people rethink what they're saying before they say that this didn't matter at like the chimp stuff didn't matter at all and it didn't add anything because it absolutely matters and it absolutely yes. adds a whole a lot direct, of layers to it. It's a direct parallel. Like it's, <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> on, on that level, it's I, literal I get foreshadowing. Tom's point because that is the one thing that like every, anybody I've talked to, um, you know, about this about this movie, with the exception of my my friend who I mentioned earlier, who's in my cohort. Most people, the most of the people I know from work, and like a lot of the the kids that that are employed under me and stuff, um, like the ones who saw Nope, that was something they all said. Where they were like, "I don't get why the chimp was in there." I, so I don't know. I mean, this is going to sound like so like old man ish of me, but <laughs> I I don't I, I do think that people just aren't used to movies that do things like this as much anymore, you know, um, that actually have, like, a kind of a thematically rich um, presentation. You know, I, I think, I don't know, again, a very old man. I wish I cloud, could disagree with but, you. I wish I could disagree with you, Bird, but I, I mean, I, I think you're right, like... Because, I, I mean, I get it, though. Like, I'm not blaming the, you know, younger generation or whatever, because, like, most of the movies that we do see, the big movies are, like, go sit down, action, turn your brain off, it's, you know, whiz-bang explosions, and you, you're, you okay, that was a fun night at the movies, and and that's that's just what we're kind of used to, but I don't know. No, I mean it's 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 a real it's a real thing. Um you know, uh I mean I I almost inevitably at some point give the the antidote in my intro to film class every semester um about you know, which is not not related not related to film, but I think it's it's telling especially you talk about like the younger generation because I think it starts when kids are really young, but you know, um Gindy Tartakovsky is the creator of Samurai Jack and Primal and I'm a big fan of his his television work. Um, talks about you know early on doing Samurai Jack, um, having uh, you know trying to push this idea of doing storytelling that's mostly visual and has very minimal dialogue in it, and that being the thing that the executives at Cartoon Network really push back on because of their argument that like their audience, which is they're they're saying is children, but their audience is not intelligent enough to figure out a narrative that isn't being spoon fed to them or explained to them, which Tartakovsky thought was very, you know, demeaning and insulting, but it is definitely something that, you know, you can see, you know, over, over the years has, uh, you know, based on movie execs and TV execs, you know, they, that's just something that they want, right. They don't want ambiguity, Mm -hmm. 
Um, they want to be very clear about what the message is, what the story is here, so that you know they can be sure that audiences are getting it. Um, and and so yeah, you know, I think that you know it, it's becoming increasingly unusual. Yeah. It, it's just what they're used that. to. Like I said, it's yeah. not even like their fault. It's just that's what mm. they're used to, and it's 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 weird to them when it's not like that. The, right. the Gordy stuff for me was was me personally. This was my most harrowing moment. This was yeah. Um, yeah, because as 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 uncomfortable as the people being digested by Jean Jacket is, there's um, Gordy is like real stuff that could well, happen. <laughs> well, there's there's also that element of like I felt like, and I'm not saying this as a as a knock, but I felt like I was seeing so much of it that not much of it was left up to my imagination. Whereas Gordy like goes on his, goes, goes on his rampage or whatever yeah, yeah. you, you want to call it. You don't and you, you hear it. You, you don't really yes, see it. You hear it. You like at one point he, uh, the, the male lead of the show, the father figure like sprints through a door trying to get away from the scene and Gordy sprints through it after him and you hear the guy like no Gordy no and then you just hear like wet thudding noises yeah the sound and design it's, yeah it's awful there's the other part where like I think and, I think it's like behind a couch but like he's attacking yes. the mom and like he's basically use it pounding her body with his fist like basically using his fist to cave her chest in and like all you see is like her feet, like kind of like move with each hit. Um, the sound design in this movie, though, it just in general is fantastic. Not just in the Gordy scene, but I, like in the theater, like hearing like all the the people in Jean Jacket screaming and stuff. Like the sound design is really good. But yeah, that wet that thudding <clears throat> and stuff. Ugh. ugh. Yeah. Yeah, it's thanks, Tom. That just brought that sound back. <laughs> <laughs> it's just uh, the opening scene, like those you bird you talked about it, but like the the weird, like otherworldly sounds that you realize is like something being digested and eaten and screaming in pain when the father like dies and that because like he kind of like looks up, he hears this weird sound. It's just, it's yeah, everything about this movie is upsetting. <laughs> yeah. So. um uh, well, I think we all can agree Jean Jacket is a pretty cool monster. Um, but let's talk about some fun things about Jean Jacket. Well, then I get into something that's just going to wig everyone out again. But we can enjoy some fun for a minute. Um, so Justin, uh, so they they actually uh, had like scientific consultants on this that actually, unlike the ones in like Rampage, actually like explained how a creature like this could move and exist based on real um, animals. And they even gave it a uh, its own, like, uh, the, a name for, like, the species, which I'm going to have you say because I just, I can't do it. Yeah, so um, this is really neat, which is, so Jordan Peele hired um, a, uh, a um, marine biologist doctoral candidate, um, uh, named uh, Kelsey Rutledge, uh, who is, um, I believe she's doing her doctoral work at, um, oh, I can't, 
Uh, UCLA. Yeah, she's doing her doctoral research at UCLA in California, but she is, um, again, from actually from Asheville, North Carolina. So there's a fun connection going back to the uh, Brown Mountain Lights. Um, but yeah, she was she was hired by Peel to work on the film as a, as a scientific consultant to help design the alien um, based on uh, on real uh real animals and so the general sort of shape of it is based on a sand dollar Mm -hmm. the camouflaging ability is based on a cuttlefish um there's a lot of squid in there um specifically what are known as big fin uh squids so but the um yeah the the big fin jellyfish is basically like how it moves like at the end when it's like completely unfurled that, that that's kind of the animal they were studying the most yeah um, so, and the, uh, but yeah, so, uh, you've, you've got that and, um, uh, yeah, so, so and yes, yeah, Peel had her come up with a, a technical scientific name for this, this alien creature, um, which is Oculonimbus Edoequus, um, which means hidden dark cloud stallion eater. <laughs> um, so if you want me to break yeah, down yeah. The, the Latin, <laughs> Oculo means hidden, uh, Nimbus is cloud, um, Edo eater equus stallion. So yeah, um, but and, that's, and, uh, yeah. yeah. Of course, I mean, I think the obvious one for most of us that walked out of this. The first thing I did after I saw it was I googled Jordan Peele nope Evangelion because I was mm-hmm. like, that Jean Jacket's an angel. And of course, you know, <laughs> I found that yeah, he he was looking at and he was like showing the the angels to like the. The creature designers and saying like I I want something like this and I found an interview where he he basically said like the angels and Eva are like his some of his favorite creature design and he's a big anime like nerd so you know none of that is uh, is surprising as, as evident by the um, Akira slide that is also in this movie. yes which is yeah. awesome yeah I, I I mean that's been done a million times but at the end of this at the moment that it is. And it being Kiki Palmer, so a black woman on a white motorcycle doing the Akira slide through police tape. It was just like, that's just awesome. (laughs) It's been done a lot, mostly in animation with a few sort of tokusatsu things in there. But, you know, this is, he he did it in live action, so that's pretty cool. Um, And then biblically accurate angels, I think, are kind of probably what Anno in them kind of were looking at when they were designing the angels, which those yeah, are crazy. Yeah. So I, I did want to mention something about that really briefly. Um, because, uh, I think that, you know, this is, this is something that's become a meme in recent years is this idea of sort of the biblically accurate angel, um, where, you know, you'll see these images online of these weird looking, Creatures very reminiscent of again the, the angels in Evangelion, where they're you know um, you know eight wings and they're covered in eyes and they're they're made out of concentric sort of rings that are like looping around each other and stuff and and the idea is that these are you know what actual angels according to the Bible are supposed to look like um, and and that you know they're almost these kinds of Lovecraftian sort of horrors but. But what this is what this is actually in reference to is so in the book of Ezekiel in in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, um, 
there is this, this scene early on where the prophet Ezekiel has a vision of God's throne room. And, uh, and part of this is, um, you know, he sees these, these strange creatures. They're not actually described as, as angels. They're described as, and in Hebrew, it would be cherubim, or we tend to, rem, uh, in, in English, it becomes cherubim, or shortened sometimes to cherub, um, which have sometimes been reimagined as kinds of like cute little babies with wings, almost like Cupid. But uh, what Ezekiel describes are these creatures that have um, the aspects of multiple animals, and they have multiple wings, and and they're covered with eyes. And then there's a very similar incident in the beginning of the book of Isaiah, where the prophet Isaiah sees uh, God's throne room, and again, God is surrounded by this sort of entourage of, of beings, which are described as, as seraphs or seraphim, um, which means something like the burning ones, and they have multiple wings and multiple eyes. Um, and and so this is being kind of conflated then with the uh, more sort of traditional notion of, of angels in the Hebrew Bible, um, which is, so the Hebrew word there is, is malakim, which means messengers. And the malakim, though, every time they show up in the Hebrew Bible, they're just regular people. They just look like normal people. They're often mistaken for people upon kind of an initial encounter with them. Um, that's why there's that, that passage in the New Testament that it says, you know, always be kind to strangers for you may have entertained angels unaware. Um, and it's only when people sort of figure out that they're actually talking to angels that then they have this adverse reaction where they fall down and cover their heads. Um, and this doesn't seem to be because the angels are some sort of Lovecraftian horror show. It's because this is kind of a, a sign of, of respect or deference that you would have in the ancient world when you meet someone of high-ranking status, right? You avert your eyes, you look down, um, you know, you see this sort of thing still in, in some place like Japanese culture, you're supposed to bow and you bow at a certain, you know, amount depending on how high-ranking the other person is that you're talking to. But this meme has kind of taken the cherubs and the seraphs and then this notion of averting your eyes when encountering an angel and mixed it all together for, you know, what, what is admittedly a pretty, pretty funny effect. You know, I'm not trying to be sort of like a, a buzzkill or a stickler and be like, well, that meme's not accurate. I love those memes. I love, you know, I'm sure Danny's going to listen to this episode. I love every time he shares one of those with me. I think they're great. You know, um, and and it it and in part because it opens up this conversation about what actually angels are in in the Hebrew Bible um, or these other kinds of celestial creatures, uh, which is really you know which is really interesting and and I do have to mention one last thing about that which is uh, you know I I did the whole spiel earlier about this idea of UFOs as being um, you know living living creatures and said you know this is an idea that even though it, it keeps coming up over and over again in the history of ufology, you know, doesn't seem to have, have gotten a lot of traction amongst kind of mainstream UFO believers or in popular culture. But actually, um, one place or, or one group of people who have really latched on to this, interestingly enough, are evangelical Christians. Um, when they talk about UFOs, they love 
love this idea that they're living creatures because they can then either argue that they are angels or alternatively argue that they're demons. Uh, mm-hmm. Billy Graham wrote a book back in the 80s, I believe, called Angels, God's Secret Agents, where he talks about, he says, every time somebody sees a UFO, they're actually seeing like an angel and they just don't realize it. Um, so that that's one place where this idea um, has has really gotten um, a lot of a lot of traction, and I'll just mention if people want to read more about that, um, go look up a uh, an an article that was written by a friend and colleague of mine, Joseph Laycock, that he wrote called uh, "Unmasking the Alien Deception: Why Evangelicals Are Studying uh, Ufology," which was just published last year because it's actually becoming apparently a more and more common thing that you have. Christians talking about UFOs. So, huh, Matt, you're a Christian. Do you know all that? Uh, <clears throat> I did, although, oh. like, I, uh, <laughs> I don't. Uh, he gets evangelicalism the is not my thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's a whole thing with like, um, I, Justin will know these books, but, like the Left Behind series, and like, anytime somebody would mention angels or like, there's a whole idea that. Hollywood is putting out alien movies because it's supposed to deceive. It's, it's, it's a thing that I don't (laughs) like, I no. we're just, we're just going to move on. So while we're talking about jean jacket, I have, I just stumbled upon this. Um, like I said, that the, the digestion scene, the whole concept like shook me. So I, I was like, I want to know what people are saying about this. And on Facebook, I just like did the search and I just typed nope digestion scene. I don't remember where I found this post. I don't know what group it was in. I don't know any, I, I have no idea, but I made sure to screenshot it because it was crazy. And, uh, you know, usually I don't do the fan theory thing, but uh, this is an interesting one. I'm not sh- if if we were to scrutinize it, I don't know if it holds water, but it's crazy enough that I'm going to do a f- podcast first and actually entertain it for a moment. Um, so this was a post by a guy named Lan Tarek Kozar. Uh, whoever you are, if you're listening, I this is a wild observation. So um, there's a lot of really crazy design elements to Jean Jacket beyond just being a thing that looks like an a Evangelion monster jellyfish thing. Um, in fact, the opening credits... Um, it starts with, you know, the horse jockey and then it, you know, they zoom out into what looks almost like a weird, like ventilation shaft almost. And, you know, as you watch the movie, you, you go back to those opening credits and you're realizing that's like part of the inside of jean jacket. Um, so this guy is kind of talking about some of those design elements, um, so uh, he says, uh, uh, I haven't seen anyone else who noticed this, but I'll happily be patient zero. And, and uh, what I see is pretty obvious uh, theory that no one else is talking about. And he says, it's not supposed to be called the digestion scene. The creature doesn't digest anything. Did you see any digestive juices? What you did witness in that scene and throughout the movie was screaming, horses and people screaming, and it kept them alive, and it kept them screaming. When it was doing, when it was done, it crushed them into jelly and spit them out with nothing absorbed. Um, if you look at Jean Jacket, 
you see an organ, its mouth, which is also its eye and its ear. That organ looks like a big speaker or a microphone, like a diaphragm surrounding a voice coil and a wavy spider dish around it. All the rest of the creature is uh, prehensile foldable tissue. It flies around and hears loud noises and heads in that direction. Its usual form is the saucer, is its tissue folded around the mouth-eye organ to create a perfect echo chamber. Then it sucks up people or horses and holds them in place inside this echo chamber, and it begins to manipulate their tissue to squeeze, poke, and break their bones slowly to produce screams. It literally feeds on the high-pitched screams of its prey, which is why it continuously is implied that they're alive and screaming in pain for hours on end. Once their voices are used up and it's full, the creature efficiently contracts its tissue to crush them into jelly and spits them out. Furthermore, its entire digestive cycle is based on waves. Much like a tree absorbs carbon dioxide and excretes oxygen, the creature absorbs and eats strong mechanical energy like shrill sounds and excretes strong electromagnetic energy, hence why nothing electrical can work near it. I like it a lot. I do too, and it makes it even more unsettling. The fact that it's all it's do it's it's digesting the sound and after that it's just done with you and crushes you and spits you out it's even it makes something like you, that was already really uncomfortable and unsettling even worse <laughs> yeah it's like it a reminds on their me paint. of <laughs> yeah, it, it reminds me of the Titans and Attack on Titan right it's established early on that they don't actually eat humans for nutritional purposes like they don't even have um uh, they don't even have like an anus, right? So they're not, they don't even excrete anything. They just eat people until they, they're so full they have to vomit them back up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's sick, but I, 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 I don't know. I, I was like, like I said, I immediately screenshotted it and was like, I need to hold on to this <laughs> because it's crazy. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I believe I I kind of believe it too because I wasn't in lockstep with you when you were talking about seeing the people like in stinky juices or something. I feel like you mentioned that you know very early on, and I was like, I don't remember juices, but you've seen it more recently yeah. than I have. And, so. and on the making of, they um, show him filming that scene, and he basically has people like on a conveyor belt, and then they flip the image like vertically to make it look like they're going up. And like, there's like pe- set people like, 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 uh, you know, covering like the actors with goo and stuff. Well, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about just this point here too, where, um, this is something that that I talk about on my show, my Dragon Ball show, Final Forum, a lot, and how Akira Toriyama takes a lot of things that you've seen before and references them and repackages them and uses them in a different way and blend he you know, he's blending Chinese, Japanese, Hindu, uh, Buddhist and Western culture into like one thing and, and melding it. And it kind of makes its own new unique thing. Jordan Peele in, in this movie, you can, you can easily go online and search 
for like Easter eggs and references. And I mean, there's a, there's a couple pretty good like tumblers or whatever that I've come across that have done like side by sides of shots with this from shots with, and, and, Close Encounters of the Third Kind or War of the Worlds or even like 10 Cloverfield Lane. And then the, the you know, we talked about the Akira thing and the, 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 uh, the climax of the movie is basically like a, a reworking of the, the climaxes of Jaws with like sprinkle in the abyss. And what I, what, what I'm just driving at there is it's, there's there's a lot of influence being brought to this movie, but it's being used to make something unique. Yeah, he's not remaking that, any of that stuff. Right. And the ref the references are so not heavy handed. Um you don't necessarily like you're not gonna notice them, you know. Um unless you know what they are. And it's it's that sort of fan service type of stuff done really well and done right. Um, and, and I just wanted to, to talk about that. Cause yeah, it's something that I've been very keyed into lately. Um, ever since we started our podcast, because that is Toriyama does a ton of referencing and, and using homages and things, but it is used in service of creating something that, is unique and gets copied at the end of the day and mad props to peel for managing to drop in a bunch of Easter eggs and references and things without them just being a bunch of Leo pointing at the scene moments. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he's talked about, uh, well, we mentioned Evangelion and Akira, but also, um, King Kong, Jurassic park, close encounters, signs, wizard of Oz, Jaws and uh, Tremors. I mean, you see uh, the Wizard of Oz and like all this, like there's like a lot of storms and wind yeah, storms yeah. and yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of movies that he considers examples of, you know, our addiction to, to spectacle. Um, uh, I, there was another interview where someone said, like, if you had to pick one movie to do a double feature of with Nope, he said King Kong. The, 33 King Kong. And I, and I, I think that's a really good answer because Shh, that's just cause he hasn't seen Dogra. <laughs> <laughs> well, King Kong is a good answer because, um, like there's different ways that could play, you know, depending on who's watching this double feature. And I mean, I, the obvious one is, you know, they're both about spectacle and how showmen will exploit animals and things will go very wrong. Um, if you look at it in the, in a more like black perspective, you know, King Kong is a movie that in 1933, I mean, we've talked about it on our, on our show, you know, Justin's talked about it in his essays on, on King Kong, you know, at, at the time, you know, that's, it's kind of a, spe- a little bit of a, especially when you're on the island scenes, you know, it's a spectacle of, of racism and then pair that with a, you know, a predominantly black led movie and there's a juxtaposition there. Um, and yeah, I mean, we mentioned um, Jupe being like Carl Denham. Uh, Justin mentioned a second character that's very Denham like and that's Michael Wincott's uh, cinematographer character, Andal's. Uh, Andal's uh, Holst, yeah, Holst is his last name. Um, 
who basically he lives for his art and is obsessed with capturing the impossible shot that no one else can get and um along with the Gordy stuff this is probably the second biggest like complaint is people don't understand why this guy basically got killed shooting and knowing he would get killed <laughs> filming something and it's i think you know he what we know about that character is he thinks of himself as you know a, an artist and you know he's he's getting that shot for him you know he doesn't care who else sees it that's where him and denim might differ whereas it said denim would gladly get like gored by a rhino if he got a shot. Denim does it for people to see it, but I don't think Andal's Holst really cares. He's like, I want to get this for me. And if I die getting something that no one else in the world can say they ever got, that's a good way to go out. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with everything you just said. And he's the other character who I got like really strong like Carl Denham vibes off of, you know, um, especially almost a little bit more, uh, you know, Peter Jackson's reinterpretation of Carl yeah, Denham, yeah. where, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, where he's, you know, because, you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I've probably talked about it before, you know, I mean, the 2005 King Kong has a lot of problems, but I mean, I do kind of like how Jack Black's portrayal of Denham is, is almost somebody who's kind of like borderline, um, you know, sort of suicidal, right? It's yeah. like, you know, he, he keeps having these moments in the film where he's, he's like, you know, he, he realizes he sees the clear and present danger of skull Island, but he, he can't stop himself from, from going forward. And you, you see that with, with Win Wincott's character in this movie where, you know, he's, it gets to that point in the film, he's got the shot, you know, he has, video of the alien you know that's going to be you know that that's what he's there for and yet he wants more you know he has to keep filming um and even even to the point where you know it it, it kills him so yeah. yeah um just some other random uh, little notes i have before we kind of start to wrap up in t- november 30th 2014 jordan peele tweeted Dreamt that a baby chimp attacked some people, then ran to me and hugged me all scared. I woke up with tears streaming down my face. Hashtag bruh. <laughs> um, <laughs> he was later asked about that tweet, and he said he didn't remember making it, which I, I can believe. Um, but I think that's just an example of how, you know, we subconsciously come up with, you know, that we might have things in our subconscious which stick with us and... We don't even know it. Um, another thing is uh, this movie has great taste in T-shirts. Um, I am a fan of uh, heavy metal and punk rock, and there's a lot of uh, bands represented here that I like. Um, so uh, the Jesus Lizard, Rage Against the Machine, Mr. Bungle, and Earth all get uh, T-shirt shout-outs. Shout-outs via T-shirt. Um, then I have a, an interesting piece about the score and I haven't heard this talked about anywhere. Um, but this is, uh, an observation that only someone as, uh, musically nerdy as, uh, our friend Chris Marty would notice. Um, and, uh, he, he basically just left this as a letterboxed review and I'll just read it because, uh, 
it's crazy. I've listened to these two pieces of music, and this is absolutely true. And it, I think it has to be intentional. Um, so uh, I'll just go ahead and read this. Uh, At the climax of the film, OJ rides towards the camera with the UFO in pursuit, and a piece of music called G-Spot Tornado by Frank Zappa is quoted in the score by Ma- Michael Abels, which is a good score, by the way. Um, and it's tit- the, the title of the, that track in the movie's uh, soundtrack is called The Run, Urban Legends, um, and uh, that cue kicks in at about 32 seconds, um, and it becomes a Western hero theme for the grand finale. Um, and uh, goddamn, what a subtext, he says. Um, G- so G-Spot Tornado was um, composed electronically um, by, uh, for an album called Jazz from Hell. Intentionally, it was a piece of music that was intentionally impossible to perform by humans. So legend has it that when Frank Zappa's work was being adapted for live orchestra for something called the Yellow Shark, the orchestra performed G-Spot Tornado with Zappa conducting, achieving what was thought to be impossible. Um, so yeah, G-Spot Tornado by Frank Zappa and the run from the Nope score. Um, that is just a really super deep cut thing that I just thought was kind of fun. So here's a question. What do you guys think of the ending? They finally get a picture of Jean Jacket before they, you know, before Jean Jacket is killed via exploding balloon. Um, do you guys think that Emerald and OJ are going to exploit that in a, in a, in a, w- the way that, you know, Jupe might? where they're going to strictly become opportunists, or do you think that, you know, maybe they won't share it with anyone? What do you guys, where do you guys see them going after the credits roll? So something I wanted to say real quick, and I don't, I, I haven't been, um, I haven't been as intensely looking at like fan theories and, and breakdowns of this as you have, Kyle. So maybe this is something that somebody's already pointed out, but I did think it was interesting, right, that you have, um, you know, so in, in the flashbacks that we see of of uh, the Gordy attack, um, you know that we learn that the thing that set Gordy off was a balloon popping. Yep. yep. And yep. and so then I thought <clears throat> that it was it was interesting that so at the end, how do they defeat uh, Jean Jacket the alien? It's with a, a balloon that also <laughs> happens to be shaped like Jupe, and they they choke it um, with that balloon. So I thought that was an interesting pairing there. Yeah. Yeah, that's another thing I was thinking of when I came out of the movie is, like, you could almost call this, like, an ambiguous ending. Like, are they going to fall into that trap? Because they finally got what they wanted. And, yeah, I mean, they were doing it because, you know, they wanted to get the business, family business, you know, kind of, you know, I guess get money for it, uh, you know. But, you know, are they going to end up are they going to end up like Jupe, where you know that this becomes a way for them to pr- like a poor way for them to process trauma, you know? Or are they going to have some class about it? And I don't know. I mean, it's it's just an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, I, I, the movie doesn't give us that answer, but I do think it's worth like that's kind of the question I think it poses to all of us is like, what do we, you yeah. know, it, and what would what would we do, you know? Yeah. That's, well, you think about an like interesting uh, like. Would the picture even change anything? People have 
tons of pictures yeah. of UFOs. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think they they obviously would have preferred it if it was on film, you know, also. But yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting kind of question, you know, that they, they could well, go the, either way. <laughs> the thing I think about is like lottery winners and how many of them end up going bankrupt. Like they get the thing that they want and they immediately what do they do with it? They end up like yeah. losing it and, all immediately. And, and there is a piece of dialogue from Andals where he you know you know the he says to OJ and Emerald, he says like this dream that you're chasing is one that you don't wake up from. And that's foreshadowing his death because it's like he that's what killed him, you know, and, and so again, it's like could could that also be foreshadowing where they're gonna go after the credits roll? Well, even like the uh, we we talked about it briefly, but like the paparazzi guy that like shows up, he's like, "Please film me as I die." Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's like, it, it's the whole it's that whole like idea that I mean, there is something about culture just in general right now where we are constantly addicted to like social media and like people yeah. filming stuff like. How many times you see? Or it didn't happen, right? Well, like somebody filmed something instead of helping the person. Some yeah, tragedy yeah, happens, yeah. and everybody's got their cell phone out, and nobody's actually like this person needs some sort of assistance, and we're not bothering to actually be real humans and helping the person. Yeah, and then, you know, and then that gets sold or exploit. I mean, even not that you know yeah. anyone could stop something like nine eleven, but I mean, look at how much merchandise and video and all kinds of stuff that was just made money after 9-11 you know um is is crazy again it's that you know exploiting spectacle (laughs) i you know i always think about like the the people mad about like the the protesting of like the flag or whatever are also the same people buying the flag bikinis and like (laughs) the bathing suits right right (laughs) yeah um, we exploit everything. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was going to say, um, as far as the question about like what happens after the credits roll, I did, I did think it was interesting. I know I shared this with you, Kyle, that, you know, I mentioned earlier, um, Kelsey Rutledge, the, the scientific consultant for this film, she was interviewed on uh, science Friday, the, the segment on the, uh, on NPR. And, um, she does mention in that interview that apparently, and I've been looking for this, and it doesn't seem to have manifested, but she mentioned that they were supposed to have something set up with the journal Nature, which is a, uh, the most prestigious scientific journal in the world, where they were going to publish um, a kind of fake paper that I guess she had written um, describing how afterwards, I guess, OJ and Emerald sell the body of the alien to science or something and, and it gets dissected. Um, so, you know, I don't, you know, but that, that hasn't, um, nature, nature hasn't actually published that as far as I can tell. And I can't find anything else about it, um, online, any other interviews with, uh, with Rutledge. I kind of wonder if maybe it was something that they had, talked about early on and then for whatever reason nature decided to to back out of it (laughs) what if people believe this right well that's actually (laughs) what i i was thinking is because you know that's become such an issue in recent years yeah there was there was that uh what was it the um 
There were the mermaid. Yep, yeah, the mermaid documentary Planet. that like people I don't know turned on after a commercial break and like thought it was real. Of course, there, War of the Worlds is another one. And yeah, there's there's like the mermaid thing in recent years. There was one earlier this year where there's this um, guy who has a, a show now I think on Animal Planet, Coyote Peterson. He's kind of like the new Steve Irwin. He did a video on his YouTube channel where about like hypothetically finding a Bigfoot skull and he was very clear. I watched the video. He's very clear that this is not real, but people went absolutely nuts about it and <laughs> thought that, you know, this guy had really found a Bigfoot skull. And then when he releases like a follow-up video saying, no, it's not real. People were like, Oh, you fucking hoaxer. You yeah. Know? Th- there like, was also <laughs> a, um, an alien movie, uh, that aired only once. It was a found footage movie in the nine. 90- Early oh, yeah, Alien Autopsy. Yep. Yeah, well, there was Alien Autopsy, and then there was one, it aired on UPN. Uh, I forget what it's called. It's Alien Encounter and something. It ha- it actually has like one of the first, if not the first roles from uh, Emmanuel Shariki, the actress. But hmm. even now, it, it was a remake of like an independent short from a while back, and like Alien Conspiracy Theorists... I mean, there's people that think the UPN special was real, and then there's people that think the version that that remade was real, and then the director remade it to cover up the fact that it was. Re- it's crazy. It's I went through a whole crazy wormhole on this a year or two ago. Um, oh, one thing I forgot to mention that was cool um, when the when Jean Jacket is like sucking people up. Um, that's again, talking about practical stuff. That's, uh, that's not, those aren't CGI people. They actually hired like a ton of stuntmen to come in and basically get hung upside down and flung into the air. And then they, they, that that's what they used. Um, there's behind the scenes stuff on that too. So that's another, um, kind of cool thing. Um, anyway, uh, I think we're about ready to wrap up. I will, the last thing I'll say is just kind of echoing what we said earlier. It it is a shame that, not movie fans, movie fans saw the movie and dug it, but it's a shame that kaiju fans have not really discovered this movie yet. I mean, you know, where's my Dogura versus Jean Jacket, you know, fan fiction, you know, you know, I mean... Come on, guys! <laughs> watch more than Godzilla. If they don't, if they don't watch, nope. How will they ever answer the question about who would win between Godzilla and Jean Jacket? Yeah, and, and Nope is is you know it's it it is a monster. It's a stealth kaiju movie. Jordan Peele make a made a black kaiju movie. What a what a <laughs> what a dude! You know. Um, but anyway, I I you know I I think I think we can just go ahead and uh, wrap up here. Um, I get that. <laughs> Justin sending us crazy clickbait about Nope and the monster first. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think it's time we pass it around. And I mean, how, how many, um, murderous chimps eating somebody's face do we want to <laughs> give Nope out of five? Um, I mean, who, who's first? So, like I mentioned, the the pacing is a little tough to hang with. I think it starts a little slow, um, and I haven't rewatched it. Um, but I remember thinking after seeing it, like uh, the first half is pretty loaded, heavy on a mystery, 
which I kind of wonder how it will hold up on. It held up really good for me. (laughs) Knowing, knowing, you know, the answer to some of the mystery. Um, so I personally could have just used like a little bit more of the, the character stuff during that first hour, um, to, to kind of break up some of the heavy lean on mystery. Um, and then, you know, like I said, I would like some of the social commentary to go a little further. Um, I am iffy on how much I like the the ending personally with it being just pictures. I actually think there's a, a interesting sort of symmetry to it with it being like, was it like four still pictures? And that's the number of still pictures that create the man riding on the horse. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think that, you know, there's there's a million pictures of UFOs out there. So do they even accomplish their goal type of thing? Um, but none of that ruins the experience of watching it. It's very taught, very well made, very tense. It feels like it was made by a person, too. Not, yes. You know, and it's that's, not a committee that's thing. what I was going to call algorithm. With. Thank you. <laughs> um, but... Yes, I will take something like this, warts and all, but with a clear vision that feels like it was made by a person over even the very best like four-quadrant, crowd-pleasing, cynically-made, cash-grab, studio mega-blockbuster any day. I loved, I loved Spider-Man No Way Home. I will take this, warts and all, over that movie Every single day. And it's like as a personal ethos or ethos, uh, I'd rather give a shot to any movie that's that's made by a person than any studio blockbuster. And then accounting for my own personal tastes, this hits a lot of my own personal tastes. So it's got some hiccups, but it's very good. And then being like a slightly more kind of pure movie pushes it to being something great and i am very comfortable giving it a four out of five jean jackets um and that's actual jean jackets that i would wear (laughs) and uh i'm i'm pretty convinced it could probably go to a four and a half if i rewatch it and i'm like oh yeah this is this still slaps so all right yeah i'm right there with you tom um the the characters in this movie i mentioned that earlier but like they all have a realness to them and a believability um and i don't even disagree like i i do think the first half can be a little slow but like that's less of a critique and more of like a maybe a, a matte thing that i just need to get over um but the movie is engaging it's challenging there are moments where it's really fun and funny and there are moments where like it's uncomfortable and gross. Um, and so I'm going to give this a four out of five. I also agree that like, um, I actually had intended to rewatch it, uh, before recording the podcast. Cause it's been a little bit since I've seen it, but, um, I, I think upon future viewings, I could push this higher. <clears throat> All right, Justin, where are you at? Um, I, I've only had a chance to watch it once when I saw it in theaters um, I do intend to get the Blu-ray, and I do intend to watch it again. Um, I really liked it. Uh, so, you know, and I, I really don't um, 
you know, I don't have any particular um, reservations uh, about it in particular. And, you know, maybe it is the sort of thing where, you know, it just it's, it's a movie that ticks a lot of boxes for me with it being a, you know, a, a monster, a giant monster movie. It also having those strong 14 elements that I talked about. It also, you know, something you mentioned earlier, Kyle, um, is that, you know, that uh, Western aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, this is. This is the Cowboys versus Aliens film that Cowboys versus Aliens is not. <laughs> it's what it should have know. been. Yeah. Right. You know, this is, um, you know, and I, and I do like that. I like the, I like weird Westerns as a genre that I think are, are not done uh, very well at all in, in film in particular. Um, so, you know, I mean, yeah. So for me, I mean, this is a, a full, you know, five digit fist bump with a yeah, bloody chimp you fist, you know, so I'll, I'll go five. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I really liked it coming out of the theater and I, I really did like it even more when I rewatched it. And, um, I mean, it ticks a ton of my boxes that, you know, you know, might be a little different from you guys, but I mean, we have a giant monster that's basically a live action angel, which is awesome. Um, just, the cast from the main players to the supporting cast are all great. I mean, Kiki Palmer and Daniel Kaluuya especially are just so good. So, so good in this. And they deserve to be megastars. Um, uh, positive um, black representation um, and a lot of just... Like I said, I mean, if if you can wig me out good, that's the highest compliment I can give a horror movie, and and this one this one did it, and um, uh, and just on top of just a lot of you know, it's just a thematically rich sci-fi movie that we haven't had a lot, and it is more like you know the mid-budget movies that you would see more of that aren't based on these big IPs, you know, that we used to get all the time in the nineties. And, um, uh, yeah, just, yeah, really solid. And, you know, even, you know, Kiki Palmer's character, you know, she talks about having a girlfriend and, you know, that it's not made into like a huge deal and it doesn't really feel like it's, you know, targeted to, placate an audience it just feels like a natural part of her character that she's gay um and just yeah i mean it just does so much that i just appreciate and um it just especially this year when you know so many of these franchise movies have just felt so stale and it it just was the right movie at the right time for me and um yeah i'm kaiju fans especially should should get on this, um, and uh, it's a shame that the thing that would get them watching it more is a big spoiler. But you know, just go check it out. I, I give it a four and a half, and um, I was it thinking Get Out was his best movie, but this one I might like just as much. Get Out sits with me at a four and a half right now too, and um. I get what Tom and Matt are saying about some elements being a little shaggy, but, you know, hey, so many of my favorite movies are like that. Like, They Live is a bit of a shaggy dog of a movie, but it's brilliant, <laughs> and I love everything about it. So, um, yeah, anyway, enough rambling. I mean, it's a four and a half for me. I mean, it These could... shaggy movies 
grow on you over time is the thing, you know, yeah. right? So I'm good with I'm good with a four now and then, you know, pick up the Blu-ray and rewatch it, show it to a couple people and end up rewatching it a couple more times, throw it on on a Halloween and, you know, five, ten years from now I've seen this, you know, four or five times now and i'm like oh this is like one of my favorite movies yeah. you know yeah, so no, i yeah i yeah i liked it even more the second time i watched it and you know i i think you know this was a this was a long discussion but th- this movie really does have a lot to unpack and a lot to talk about and it's actually worthy of our uh rambling tangents and <laughs> long run times um Anyway, it's great. I can't say enough good things about it. I'm super happy it exists. I'm super happy it was a giant monster movie and uh, a black one, no less. So, again, it means a lot to me, and I just, it does so much right. <laughs> um, but that's Nope, everybody. Um, if you're a maniac that stuck with us without seeing it, I mean, you probably missed out on a... a a little bit of the experience, but hopefully you'll go check it out and and spread the word, kaiju fans. I mean, don't you don't have to give away it's a giant monster movie. Just be like, look, go watch Nope, and then we'll talk. Um, anyway, it's uh, it's good stuff, and uh, I think we're I think we're good to go. You guys good? I'm good. All right. Well, thank you for yeah. listening. Yeah. Thank you guys for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.